Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, brothers and sisters and friends, and welcome to another episode of Sapient Voices, a podcast by Sapients Institute that aims to give platform to voices of wisdom and also wants to facilitate discussion in order for reason to prevail. My name is Hamza Andreas Sordis, and with me I have our very dear brother, Abdullah Al-Andalusi. And before I let him talk, I'm going to basically give you a background concerning the brother, a little bit about who he is, because I think it's very important for everybody to be aware of his work and his websites and his courses. And we're going to be promoting all of that in the next few moments, because I really believe this brother is my teacher and he's an asset for the community. Alhamdulillah. May Allah preserve him and protect him. So. Abdullah Al-Andalusi is an international speaker, thinker, and intellectual activist for Islam and Muslim affairs. He's an instructor and head of the Department of Occidentology at the Quran Institute and co-founder of the discussion forum, the Muslim Debate Initiative. He co-founded this in 2009, and it's a forum that promotes open dialogue and critical debate between thinkers, academics, politicians, and public speakers of all backgrounds. Abdullah's work involves explaining and demonstrating by rational argument the intellectual proofs for the Islamic belief system and promoting the Islamic way of life and Islamic solutions for contemporary problems. On a personal note, Abdullah takes Islamic opinions from the classical Sunni schools of thought. He is a revert to Islam and he has spoken in many community centers, universities all around the world, colleges, and has appeared numerous occasions on various programs, TV, radio, including BBC, ITV, BBC Arabic, BBC Radio, Al Jazeera, and much more. He has also engaged in a number of debates with atheists, secularists, agnostics, liberals, and Christians on a variety of topics from theology to political philosophy. And I have never seen our beloved brother, Abdul Al-Andalusi, ever lose a debate or a discussion. And I don't only mean that intellectually, but also mean that with his manners and with his approach to these discussions, he is what you would call a Muslim gentleman, alhamdulillah. So, Brother Abdullah, jazakallah for coming on board. I was going to say, maybe you haven't seen uh, enough of them. I'll take that, I'll take that uh, compliment. Barakallah feekum, assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Uh, to watch this and yourself, brother, and um, uh, for having me on for this uh, this discussion. Um, this uh, I was very interested to talk about this because obviously this is something uh, on, on concerning a passion of mine, which is political philosophy and debating political philosophy. And um, and I do I have done debates on this topic, and I, I mentioned you before, and I'm going to embarrass you again, which is um, one of the many inspirations I think for many of the duat uh, who do engage in political philosophy was uh, you're the, one of the first pioneers that actually engaged political philosophy, in, in, in Western political philosophy in the UK. Uh, you debated on um, secular liberalism. Uh, I know previously people talk about capitalism, the, the economic system, but you actually said, let's grab the ball by the horns and talk about the actual aqidah and the, the central basis of it, debating a liberal academic. And I think that um, has inspired many duards uh, ever since to uh, be more confident and to go out there and to engage with this topic because it informs more of the, the way of life currently around the world than um, than discussions on things like let's say Christianity for example which is, is ever diminishing in its in its influence so 
uh, yeah, so Barakallah Fikum for that. And yeah, and again, thank you for inviting me again on to, to talk about this, one of my one of my passions. Yeah, bro. I mean, it's a very important topic. And the reason it's important because not only does it have a huge influence in the public and social square, but also a lot of people who seem to adopt the Islamic worldview or, or internalize the Islamic worldview and understand and believe in the Islamic worldview, they're starting to adopt some of these false alien ideologies which may be based on incoherent epistemic and metaphysical assumptions. And the other thing, the other reason is very important, and this is personal to me, is that many of the people who try to share Islam academically and intellectually, which is one of the main you know, goals of Sapiens Institute, is that we don't even know much about this. Like if you were to ask me to write an essay on postmodernism from my memory or an essay on critical race theory, I would have no clue. And this is coming from someone who has an academic background in philosophy. I just don't, it's not my area, right? So I'm gonna be treating this as a teacher-student scenario, bro. And I'm not saying it out of kind of humility, out of genuine passion, because I wanna know about this. I wanna go out there as well in the front line with yourself and join arms if you like, and basically say, look, you know, we're, we're not, we're not, we don't want to be aggressive or we're not against anyone from that perspective, but we're going to be positively assertive by showing that your ideas are incoherent and they're based on falsity. I want to do that too. But at the moment, you know, I have to, as you know, the Chinese say, empty your teacup, right? And I have to now just become a learner. So what we're going to be discussing, which I've probably alluded to it right now, brothers and sisters, is we're going to be discussing postmodernism and related concepts. What is postmodernism? What is critical race theory? How do we address these top, these ideas? And how do we use it in the context of sharing and defending Islam academically and intellectually? So from the perspective of a learner, bro, I think the first question we want you to answer is, what is the difference between modernism and postmodernism? Okay. So first and foremost, um, uh, uh, don't beat yourself up about it too much concerning these are um, left, left, left wing ideas. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll mention specifically what I mean uh, with reference to that, because I know postmodernism is actually a very broad term and it refers to both art, artistic movements um, as well as um, a huge sway of uh, different philosophical and ethical um, standpoints, you could say. But the issue is that I mean I think what you've you've dealt with mostly in the past is the um, the main um, the most the the political philosophy that has the the hegemony over the current world um, a Greek word uh, is it hegemonia I think hegemonia is that the Greek pronunciation um, the hegemony of um, uh, which I think comes from the term um, I think mean king or, or whatever you the sovereign ideology is liberalism secular liberalism. And that is by far the ruling ideology in the, the West and also in all, in, in all the countries which the West has colonized and spread its ideologies too. And many Muslims um, have succumbed to that ideology currently because it's the dominant ideology. And so they even sometimes subconsciously succumb to many of the ideas and values in that ideology and these, its assumptions and presumptions. So that's the dominant one. So this we're not really talking about um, and ideologies which are the the most dominant currently, or at least politically the most dominant, uh, but we are talking about ones which are a kind of sister mo sister movement to 
I was going to say the dark side of um, Western Enlightenment, but arguably it's all the dark side. So there's the dark and the darker side, <laughs> I suppose. And there, there's, there's, a, there's, there's these two competing forces in Western Enlightenment that have been there since the outset. And this is one of the competing forces, which um, we will, which has now manifest in what you might call as um, uh, postmodernist movement. So to answer your question, uh, kind of more, you know, specifically. Um, so the question is really, you know, what do we mean by modernism? And you've encountered many of the diff of the kind of effects uh, on symptoms of modernism itself. So modernism was basically. Uh, a term, okay, it usually applies to artistic movements uh, from the, the turn of the 19th century to mid 20th century, but it is also used as a catch-all the, for the various ideas that kind of came out of the West post-Enlightenment. So one of them is that there's the rejection of religion and God as being the centrality of uh, epistemology or, or of, um, of morals, of ethics, and also out of investigating the world. So it's no longer a God-centered or God-centric uh, universe upon which investigations will be made. It'd be a more hu human-centric. And so from that, the second kind of point of modernism is that man, collectively speaking, um, is the measure of all things, is the universal measure of all things. So now all things will be measured by its utility, uh, and its perspective to human beings, not in, re in uh, re not relative to a higher being or, or power. Um, thirdly, you could say modernism holds the belief that the world uh, is objective. Obviously, the, the, it is. Um, it can be objectively understood outside of the mind. That we can all agree on it. Uh, it's universally outside. There's something there that we can all observe. We can have a relative. Um, uh, we can have relative trust and fidelity in our observations of it, and we can mutually agree. And more importantly, that it can be accurately represented uh, through words, through mathematical models, and even through art as well, which I'll, I'll, I'll get into some examples of, of the, that as a modernist um, phrase. Now, you might say, uh, again, uh, you know, uh, is, is that a bad thing to believe that there's an objective reality outside ourselves and that we can understand it through uh, words and through mathematical models? Uh, no, but when that is mixed with the idea that uh, humans are the foundation of measuring reality and that reality itself is not founded upon anything else um, necessarily, uh, which you might call uh, a type of nat naturalism or physicalism, um, then, then it becomes more insidious. Um, mm. Another point would be public morality. So the idea that public morality is collectively decidable through human reason, which is the whole basis for the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment is the discovery of materialist political philosophies, ethics, which can be deduced from pure, purely from human reason um, and with only, only reference to human reason, vis-a-vis uh, -vis this objective uh, reality, this objective world that we can observe. Uh, lastly, the idea that the laws of the universe will also operate on human beings. And so just like you might observe evolution um, in the universe, they might say, so things change over time um, and you, you get, uh, you know, viruses pick up mutations and so it's microevolution, things like this. Um, this idea of change and, and uh, progress, a narrative of progress would also apply to human beings. So humans are on this inevitable journey to a great, wonderful uh, future uh, of progress is inevitable outcome of 
a sophisticated and happy and uh, glorious future brought on by um, progress, by the progress of the human mind, and then that manifesting manifesting itself in technology and industry. And of course, uh, the, the last, you could say, foundational principle of modernism, uh, what is new is better. So what is mm. always new is better. Now, some of this stuff you might think, well, it's not too far away from um, the Islamic perspective where we think that, yeah, you can model the world uh, on, on on words and mathematical models and so on and so forth. Uh, yes, that that's true. But the other things are very um, are very what you might call what I said, materialistic, based on physicalist assumptions, based on me metaphysical naturalism, as it might always is called. And in in the art, because art is really just an expression of 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 culture. So this is a, a culture phenomenon. This is a philosophical phenomenon, and it has its corresponding expression in art. Now there is a variety of movements which are all part of the modernist um, kind of uh, modernist movements you call the modernism uh, the modernist mindset or uh, or uh, mindset so you have uh, you have up until the 19th you know 19th century the idea of realism so they wanted to make uh, pictures photorealistic almost to actually capture exactly what we what we are observing but then this uh, actually then changed towards the uh, the yeah now I know realism might not be considered to be modernist although I consider it to be a, a modern, modernist itself because one of the drives of realism was to was to create photorealistic almost uh, pictures of of the observer world because this was before cameras were invented of course so people wanted to represent reality accurately as possible but then you had others who thought we can improve on this because not not everything is captured in a painting and so you had um, the rise of the cubists who thought that look you know. A, an image or any object can be appreciated from different angles and perspectives, but you've got a two-dimensional canvas. What, how do you solve this problem? And so what they would, uh, what cubists endeavored to do was to present multiple parts of the object at the same time on a two-dimensional canvas, which is why you get these very, if you see cubist pic, uh, paintings, they look a bit strange, obviously to us, because they're not meant to be photorealistic, but they present different sides of the object simultaneously <laughs> on a, on a two-dimensional canvas. That was the perspective. They wanted to capture, before we could maybe uh, improve representation of reality by capturing more of it uh, more accurately uh, by different viewpoints of the object, um, all captured on the same, at this from the same perspective. Um, expressionists um, uh, looked at uh, the object and the emotions it evokes. They want to discuss the object uh, and how uh, how it can actually convey the emotions, not, not just rely on the observer of the painting to react emotionally to an image, but rather that they think, well, maybe this object evokes a certain response. So, you know, the famous, for example, painting, the scream painting, the one that the, someone on the boat holding, you know, screaming, that, that, that famous scream, I don't know if you know what I'm referring to, would be an expressionist type of painting. So they thought that we can, we wanted to capture that aspect of reality, which is also the emotion that it evokes. Uh, but you also had um, impressionists who wanted to capture, for example, objects and um, how they how they are dynamically changing in, in through colors and light. So, for example, you know you might be looking at let's say uh, a tree in the middle of a field, and it has a certain uh, glimmer to it from the reflection of the sun at a certain position in in the sky. And then, of course, as the sun changes or the wind blows, uh, it, it you know it, it it will change slightly to reflect the, the different position of the sun or uh, or the wind blowing through it or so on. So, the impressionists really wanted to capture uh, these kind of objects. Um, uh, the, the the light the, the the change of light the change of colors that is is involved in it 
over time in a way incorporating time as well as space into um their their picture so these are what they were trying to do futurism try to capture more dynamic movements so you they have they draw a picture of a dog and the the legs just flapping um like a blur to uh, encompass movement uh, more more dynamic movement so that was basically um in a nutshell that's what modernism was now postmodernism is take is the next step you could say taking this to the next step um, through the simple realization of some things which is um, i know as muslims we usually have debates with atheists and you've had debates with atheists those are debates with atheists i've seen um where you discuss about morality what is the basis for morality what is the you know as you as you put it a um, an objective you know conceptual anchor for morality for the idea of good and bad you know it, it would be subjective it would be it would be according to whoever's whims or desires if it's not based on something outside ourselves but then the universe obviously doesn't have uh, doesn't you can't find good and bad in a microscope or a telescope so um so if there's no if you don't believe in god the argument goes then morality is is just fluid it, there is no inherent good and bad in anything per se so the postmodernists uh took this this consequence of removing god from the equation to the next degree which is that um humans believing that they can even there is something called objective truth even in both language and the external world is also um is also an illusion um imposed by by you know, a, f a false consciousness <laughs> right so um they just took that to the next step i mean i suppose nietzsche was sometimes taken as as the as the epitome of elucidating that perspective but they so i'll i'll give you the kind of the the, the points of modern postmodernism and and you can compare it to modernism so postmodernism moves away from the belief that um man collectively is the universal measure of all things and to the individual is the measure of all things right because there's multiple individuals and they all can have they all have their own different measures of, of of all things and so and each of these individual measures is just as valid as any other um so some people say a type of relativism but the the funny thing with nietzsche was um nietzsche didn't believe that all all perspectives were equal he thought his perspective was better than anybody else's right he'd say that you know he, that that he doesn't really give any value to anyone they're all the people's perspective he doesn't care about that he cares about his perspective so it's called perspectivism which is the the name for that particular you maybe a subtype of relativism so the individual now is the measure of all things not societies the next kind of point of postmodernism is is that belief that the 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 belief that the world is subjective to the um uh, to the observer to any observer and cannot objectively and accurately be represented through words mathematical models or art now it doesn't mean there's no external world to humans that's not what postmodernists say and that's a common misconception they simply say that you cannot interpret it with a definitive objective accurate universal interpretation that applies to anybody else it, whatever interpretation of the universe you have that's yours uh, they'll say that the universe is or the external world is has infinite interpretations that's what they'll say and likewise um uh, most postmodernist thinkers would say that even language and texts can have close to infinite interpretations it doesn't matter what the author even intended what matters is uh, how you engage with the text what it means to you how you want to use any text you read 
Uh, we can discuss that a bit more about where they got that thinking from, but that's just to, to summarize. Another point is they will say that public morality morality uh, is not um, collectively decidable by society, but is individually decidable and not through reason, because you can't trust reason, because reason doesn't give you a 100% accurate understanding of reality itself. So how can you use it to, to decide morality? Instead, they say simply that uh, your your morality, the, the morality you engage or you use in public is individually decidable through human feeling and desire, right? So that's the ultimate source of um, of e every individual's morality, whether they're in the public space or, or, or in the private space too, actually. Uh, last, well, um, third to lastly, the laws of the universe um, it, they would say it, it's it's chaotic. Well, yeah, the, you might say there are laws of the universe. You could deduce that if you'd like to say they'd say it, but the universe is chaos, and human behavior is likewise chaos. And so they reject meta narratives. They reject ideology or um, historicism, which was uh, a, a very famous socialist or Marxist um, view about. A, a historical narrative. Um, even liberals who believe, and um, they call it the Whiggish concept of history, early liberals who believed there was this inevitable progress towards liberalism and freedom and happiness and joy, they reject all that. There, there is no law you can derive about human history and, uh, and human nature. And of course, likewise, they will also reject that humans have a discernible fixed nature, a fitra, they would reject that. They would say they are, that's why they're called anti-essentialists. Whereas the modernists believe that humans did have nature and you could uh, observe it and deduce it by observation, scientific observation, whatever that means with regards to that. But postmodernists are reject, they're anti-essentialists. They don't think there is any inherent nature uh, in human beings. Um, they don't believe that progress must necessarily occur. And they certainly don't believe that what is new is necessarily better. And they point to the excesses of World War II, concentration camps, Stalin, all those things they point to and they say that at the nuclear bomb, they point to all those examples and they say, um, look, look at those examples. Doesn't that show you that the future can be terrifying, can be worse? In fact, they say that the Enlightenment um, has actually failed to deliver happiness to humans. We're actually more controlled, more surveilled, and more oppressed, more suppressed, more depressed than ever um, before. That will be their argument. And so anyone who uh, has gripes with liberalism or the liberal um, dominant ideology will tend to be gra gravitate towards this, um, this uh, the, the little sister of, um, of the liberal stream of the Enlightenment, because deeming it to be... Um, the the only way to address the, the the problems in the modern world because these this seems like to be a critique of the modern world created by liberalism and other um, modernist ideologies and so anyway in a nutshell um that's that's modernism postmodernism but in art modernism postmodernism um uh kind of highlights surrealism so for example the famous the the very famous um, uh, art piece you know there was a uh, it was in French where there was a pipe and it and it said underneath this is not a pipe I don't know if you know that know that one um, it's quite it's quite famous um, they they that would be the kind of artwork they produce uh, and there's a reason they produce that kind of artwork they want to show you that representations of art are not real life they're not reality um, and you should be you should realize that they're just simulations of reality they're they're a false illusion that's cast over your eyes. Um, uh, pop art, very postmodernist, where they show you that basically, basically that what you call art today is a mishmash 
of just previous cultural products in the past, and there's nothing really new anymore. Uh, th there's reasons why they have how they say all these arguments, but I'm just kind of su summarizing, giving, giving some examples. Um, so yeah, so postmodernism is, is not about re trying to represent reality anymore. It's really about um, the the human uh, human desires and whims and the expression of those desires and whims and the equality of all human individuals in their own morality, their own interpretation of reality, and the undecidability of anyone to anything that approaches an objective interpretation of reality. So anyway, that's a, a nutshell. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There's, there's, there's a lot there. there. <laughs> well, the first thing that comes to my mind from a learning perspective is postmodernism seems to be a kind of metaphysical lens or justification to justify shahawat, blameworthy desires, bro. Like, like, I know this sounds quite crude, but just from a kind of Islamic spiritual perspective, it's like there's a bunch of thinkers that have probably just thought about how do we justify, you know, the kind of bestial, lowly desires that we have to manifest themselves in any way that they want without feeling guilty. That's what it sounds like to me. Uh, we don't live in a moral universe. I mean, you mentioned Nietzsche. Nietzsche, for me, it was quite prophetic. I don't mean that in a Islamic or religious or theological context. I mean it that he had an insight. And he, you know when he said God is dead, obviously people misquote him. He didn't really mean it from a kind of ontological perspective. He meant God is dead in the hearts of human beings. And he realized that we would have to now become the source of our own morality. And then he realized it, each person's going to be their own God, if you like. And then he kind of raised this kind of philosophical question or moral question. I have my values. Where are yours? And that is exactly where postmodernism lies, I think, because now the individual becomes sovereign to that degree. The individual is like the basis for everything, I decide that I'm going to be one of these 16 genders, then that's my truth, right? And the whole of society has to support that. And at the same time, whole of society has to support maybe someone else who has a truth that is counter to that. And there you get the chaos, right? Now, the point that I want to raise just very quickly before we continue with the next main question that I had is, what about this whole thing about hierarchy? Hierarchy, because where do, where do the kind of discussions concerning hierarchy start with regards to postmodernism? Now, I'm getting the idea now, just from what you've just said, that, well, hierarchy is like a manifestation of truth, isn't it? Like, there must be this type of moral priority or social hierarchy, and there is a truth behind that because it leads to societal harmony, it leads to progress, it leads to all of these things, or it's worked in the past. And all of these utterances are too objective and they're true. There's too, too much truth in there. And they're thinking, no, you have to remove all of that because uh, all of that is just based upon your own context, your own social, historical, literary, linguistic norms that are not based on any objective truth anyway. And your notion of hierarchy, your notion of even more hierarchies and these things really are not representations of reality. So we should remove them in order for the individual to manifest the shahawat and the desires. Am I getting it right there? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's um, so you're, you're, you're very, you're correct. Some people call Nietzsche, um, the, the prophet of postmodernism. Uh, he, he was obviously one of the uh, existentialists um, who uh, argued that 
in the absence of God uh, in the Western, the, 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 the new Western paradigm or mindset, uh, zeitgeist, to use a Hegelian term, um, that morality now can only be decided by the individual. And in fact, the individual should have the moral courage to decide their own morality, uh, to be an ubermensch, um, to mm. be, be more than human. And yes. uh, to, to uh, and, but he didn't believe, by the way, that all human beings could do that. He only thought only the strongest could do that. Um, so might is right. Um, indeed, he said that basically truth is um, is the will to power, so, more, uh, is to impose yourself onto the world. Uh, and so what you deem to be uh, to be true, or rather what you would what you say to be true anyway, is really just coming from the place of your will to impose yourself upon the external world, to imprint yourself, externalize yourself in the, in the external world and um, uh, self-realize uh, in mm. the external world, uh, so which goes back to Hegelian uh, philosophy. Sure. So you mentioned Nietzsche uh, was one of the existentialists, and obviously existentialism is like a, it's a broad kind of philosophical approach, but is there a link between existentialism and postmodernism? Oh, very much so. Oh, very, very much so. They are the precursors and, and in fact, have, have guided um, guided the trajectory of what would then be now now be called um, postmodernism. Um, in, what way? in what way? Okay, so so in in the modernist perspective, um, you know, like humans have essence. So there's something that there's, there's there's something about you, you have a nature that's essentially yourself, uh, uh, your 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 instincts, your biological needs, your genetics, a whole number of things, you have an essence of what is you. And that is a fixed essence. You can't change that essence, no matter, you know, even if you cut off a finger or, or a, a foot or what have you, uh, you're still going to be human uh, and you'll be human while you're still alive, of course. And then when you, when you die, obviously, then you will be a non-living human. Um, and everything in the universe obviously has an essence to it, which should be studied by physics and, and uh, chemistry and biology and so on and so forth, which is in essentially the modernist, um, the, which was the modernist accepted viewpoint. So the existentialists and why they're called existentialists is uh, they came up with the argument and it was mostly about humans. They said that basically um, that before you have essence, you must exist, right? Existence is more primary more foundational than having essence and so as the famous phrase goes um, existence precedes essence and if existence precedes essence then there's nothing that you are beholden to there's no fixed nature that you have as an as a human individual that you have to stick to or that you must do or that you should do you can decide your essence in essence <laughs> um, is what they are saying you can decide your essence and therefore um, you can decide your nature and you can be, then become anything you want, quote unquote. So that's it. And that's what, what is existentialism and Nietzsche, um, who then argued that truth is a is an anthropomorphism of the universe. There is no truth to the universe. Wow. There's simply um, he, he tried his fellow atheists saying there's one there's what like you say God is an anthropomorphism there's one more anthropomorphism you you've, you haven't got rid of just yet and you need to get rid of it which is truth itself mm. um, to expect that you could actually have any kind of approximation to truth or understand what it is um, in, in itself yeah. um, you know he he, he challenged and this you, you you probably know that this is influenced by uh, the Kant's uh, Kant's argument of noumena right there's something 
beyond what you can sense in the universe that is what it, the things in, in of themselves, what they actually are, but you'll never be able to really interact with that. You'll never be able, all you can see is phenomena, not noumena, mm. what is behind the object. Now, I would even argue from that point of view that really when you remove God, as you rightly said, when you talked about, you know, man is the center of the universe or the individual and it's not God centric anymore. You know, this kind of pursuit for freedom or absolute freedom. Now, many of these kind of neoliberals talk about, you know, that they, you know, it's all about freedom. Right. Um, and they've made freedom or they, their goal is this kind of absolute type of freedom. And for me, and this echoes what Martin Ling said, that is really the desire for Allah. That's the fitrah, the nature, you know, yearning for God, because absolute freedom is a part of divinity. No one can be absolutely free. Only Allah is absolutely free. He's al-ghani. He's, al he's the absolutely free. He's al-samad. He's the independent. So all of these philosophies, in particular what's happening with maybe existentialism, even with liberalism today, this kind of pursuit for this ideal, for this you know, de-shackling, this absolute freedom, really that's just the desire for Allah. And it's only when Islam comes when they adopt Islam and they believe in Islam and they internalize Islam, that they true they will find true freedom. But what type of freedom? Enslavement to Allah, because it would free you from the shackles of everything else. Because the ruh uh, desires, the soul desires Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is very interesting because the Quran in chapter 39, verse 29, and I'm summarizing the verse, basically says that consider the situation of two people. One man is a servant to many masters and they're all quarreling. And one man is a servant to one master whose condition is best. So, you know, you're always in a state of slavery, if you like, or servitude, or you're, we're all contingent. We're all going to be dependent on something, you know, physically, ontologically, um, existentially, if you like, and otherwise. But the true freedom lies in connecting yourself with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I wanted to add that in there because uh, I, I don't think maybe the existentialists meant for this to happen. I don't know, maybe they did. I don't know what, what you feel. I don't think they meant to destroy morals, hierarchy, and all of that stuff. I think for them, it was a lot to do with, you know, about the human condition. What, what do you think? I could be wrong. I'm just I'm just uh, musing here. I mean, uh, you know, Soren Kierkegaard and perhaps Heidegger didn't perhaps re um, intend for that full consequence yes. um, to arrive. Um, uh, but but Nietzsche certainly did, and certainly um, vehemently called for it um, uh, for for humans to, in essence, become gods themselves, um, become mm. pantheon. Sure. Um, now, I mean, I want to give some context because I, I don't want anyone to think that all this began with postmodernists or with existentialists. And so, no, it didn't. Um, it was entailed in the very ideas of the Enlightenment themselves. This is just one branch of it, taking it to the uh, nth degree. Mm. To the, to its natural conclusion, if you take that as a starting assumption, so as you as you're aware, um, uh, you had uh, you had uh, Descartes and you had um, John Locke, uh, who, in essence, kind of you could say set the basis for individualism. Uh, although John Locke argued uh, that uh, humans own themselves; we are the absolute sovereign of our of ourselves on earth. Our natural state is to own ourselves. Uh, of course, Jacques Rousseau also um, took that, that that our natural state, uh, the natural law for humans is that we're meant to be individuals and absolute authority over ourselves and our, and our, and our, our bodies. And of course, John Locke said ourselves and our possessions, 
something that um, Rousseau didn't uh, agree with because he thought that possessions belongs to the whole earth, to everybody, which was the beginning of the split, which would never be the socialists and and the liberals. That that's come the beginning times. Um, but you you also had um, obviously uh, Descartes who argued that the basis of all knowledge starts with the mind, not with the empirical observation of the outside world, but starts in the minds, right? So that's where your your basis of all your knowledge is, and um, from that you get uh, François Poulain de la Barre, who was a social Cartesian, which is an interesting concept in and of itself, who argued that he was actually one of the, one of the first to argue that men and women um, are uh, equal and should be equal uh, because a mind has no sex. The mind is separate from the body, you know, the mind-body, uh, you know, dualism. And I know you've done quite a bit of um, research and study, I think, and, and uh, work on... Um, uh, the mind-body problem and, and neurology and discussing that with um, with atheists and so on and so forth, hard problem of consciousness and things like that. Um, so, so and as you know, so Descartes was you know was saying this, and of course François de Poulain de la Barre um, argued that the body of the of the woman doesn't really impact the mind. The mind is beyond the body uh, in in a way, and so the mind has no sex. Now. Uh, the, the empiricists, as you know, that time like John Locke and many others uh, who were the empiricists branch of the Enlightenment actually thought women were inferior intellectually um, to men uh, based on, well, it's not even pseudoscience. They just basically saw that women weren't as educated as men. And so they thought, well, women must be men intellectually inferior, even though their society didn't actually give women an, uh, the same education as men necessarily speaking, or at least, um, well, I, I don't think there was the public education available at the time even then. But anyway, um, so... That's what led to that that kind of split. Now, what happens is that when you take the idea that humans are a mind and the mind has no essence and the mind transcends the body, and 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 then obviously you take it via Kant, via Hegel, going towards in that stream of thinking, and of course Nietzsche becomes influenced by um, what would what is basically continental philosophy, the whole, as you know, Europe, the European take on um, those that the the kind of the European traditional philosophy from Descartes, I, which is more mind first. So then Nietzsche just says that the mind um, has uh, omnipotent abilities in a, in a way in that it, it can engage reality in its own terms, which is ridiculous, but his argument is, is, is such. And therefore it transcends observable reality. It transcends it and it can shape uh, the interpretation of reality at least. Um, and, that, um, and that it is in the nature of the mind and the human being generally to be, uh, to, to just to impose itself on reality itself. So uh, I'll just give you a quote. So he had a, there's a, a writing of his called Beyond Good and Evil. And he says, um, even the body with, within each individual treats each other as equals will have to be an incarnate will to power. It will strive to grow, spread, seize, become predominant, not from any morality or Im immortality, but because it is living and because life simply is the will to power. Uh, another phrase from a writing called The Will to Power, he said, uh, do you want a name for this world, a solution for all its riddles, a light for you too, that you best concealed, strongest, most intrepid, most midnightly men? This world is the will to power and nothing besides. And you yourselves are also this will to power and nothing besides. So this is where you get this, um, the idea that the only way human beings can truly be individuals, truly be sovereign over themselves, is they're sovereign over the very truths and morality that they subject themselves to. Um, okay, so so all of this freedom. 
Sure. So all of this modernism, postmodernism stuff, how do we see it from an Islamic perspective? The first question I want to ask is, well, is it Islamic? Can we use the modernist or the postmodernist lenses to understand reality and engage in dawah, engage with human beings, or even engage in academic work? I mean, what are the problems? What are the limitations? Should we even approach it at all? What are the terms of engagement, bro, intellectually here? Well, I mean, you know, the, the famous verse in the Quran, have you, have you seen those who make their own desires their lords, right? So they they make themselves um, in, into God. Uh, they make themselves, uh, their desires into lords. And the, it's a tyrant, right? The, their desires, desires are, and whims are tyrants. The, the, the heart is a tyrant. Um, uh, qalb, as you know, uh, um, is, is, comes from the word uh, to mean like a, a like a, a sea yeah. or it, cha- it changes, yeah. right? Right. It, it wavers. It does taqallub. So it's always wavering and changing for sure. Yeah. And so therefore, uh, it, you can't really, you can't really, um, uh, you can't control it. You don't control your desires. People don't control their desires. But if they were to be told that they themselves are divine beings, so to speak, such that they determine their own morality, their own truth, and they can be happy once they've fully freed themselves from the shackles of um, anything imposed by society, um, they will be miserable. Why? Because they still can't control their desire. They don't decide what is their happiness. They can't flick a switch and make themselves happy, make themselves content. They're not self-sufficient. Right, and that's yes. that, that's the problem. Um, uh, well, that's one of the main problems, uh, aside from the fact that they are also created beings, which are um, showing immense ingratitude to the the one who does sustain them and who is the only self-sufficient one. Um, but the Enlightenment has inculcated the idea of individualism, the idea that the individual is the most sovereign, most important concern. And uh, liberals believe that too. But these existentialists, in a way, have turned it into a spirituality of sorts. Um, and I've taken it to that maximum possible extent. Um, so, and that's, and that's one of the, the, the problems. It's the ingratitude. Yes. Also, a verse in the Quran that said um, uh, about someone, about a, a person who rejects the truth. It said, "Do you, have you not seen this? Um, the, the, the one who thinks themselves self-sufficient." Mm. Um, yes. See, so that's the, that's individualism in a way that people think they're self-sufficient, but, you, but you're not. You depend on your parents. You depend on society to teach you language. Even though you you say it's not it's um has should have no authority over you, but yet you can't even begin to make uh, cognitive categories and think and actually rationalize without language being taught to you. Your genes were supplied to you. Your sustenance was supplied to you. The clothes are mostly supplied to you unless you you weave your own clothes from from in from the forest or what have you. Every, most things are supplied to you, and you depend on it, right? And, yes. And likewise, if that was it, if the wheat shipment from Ukraine doesn't come soon, um, a lot of people will soon um, face the reality of um, how dependent they are um, on on things outside themselves. And that's yes, just, that's the I mean, this is of humans. Yeah, this is a challenge against the idea of like individualism. Like you see yourself as almost the individual has primacy and not only that you think you have this kind of sense of sovereignty from that perspective that like you become your own master or your own your, your your own king and the quran has an amazing way of just dealing with this kind of full sense of self-sufficiency and individualism 
you know, Allah reminds us that we're going to die. Allah talks about in the 22nd chapter, the whole life cycle of the human being. Like consider when we're born. We didn't give birth to ourselves for God's sake, right? And if we were born and, and someone just left us alone for two weeks with no food or no milk, we would die. We would die. And our own very birth and our own existence for at least the first few months or years is solely dependent on things outside of the individual. And those things that were helping the baby to grow and be nourished, or those people, namely the mother and, and others in many cases, required other things to be dependent upon. For example, the hospital system, the education system to actually allow us to have doctors and so on and so forth. And all of those things are ultimately dependent on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So even this idea when people think sometimes they, especially the neoliberals, like as if they were born, you know, they came out of the mother's womb with a briefcase and a tie and a bank balance, right? <laughs> is, this, is, this is ridiculous. And there's an interesting correlation between affluence and atheism, by the way. And it's not that rich people are atheists per se because of their richness, but because affluence has an ability or it can be a key to open the door to this kind of existential spiritual disease of the false sense of self-sufficiency. You know, I'm self-sufficient. It's me. I did it. But we have to realize that even our very ideas, bro, come from, you know, social dependencies. Like for us to even lang take language itself. How is it the case that I can pronounce your name as Abdullah Al-Andalusi? Why do I not pronounce your name as Abdullah? Why don't I pronounce it that way? One of the main reasons, maybe that name is, a bit, is, is, is not a great example. Let's take love, right? Why do we pronounce love as love and not love or love-e? The reason being is because it's a lived, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a living knowledge coming down to us through this concept of recurrent reporting. In the Islamic tradition, we have mutawatir. Because there was no book that taught us on how to pronounce love. Yes, we have books now that tell us dictionaries, this is how you pronounce these words. But they're just a reflection of the social living knowledge that has come down to us over time. So even very pronunciation, even meaning itself, is not based on, an, on, on just one person. It's based on this kind of collective sharing and transmitting of knowledge. And this is just language itself. Imagine all the other things that we believe in or we hold to be true. So yeah, you're right. Um, but that deals with the question of, you know, giving the individual primacy, the individualism aspect. What about the kind of other aspects concerning postmodernism? Because in the academy, if you like, in academia, there are many Muslims that seem to be maybe taking hold of these ideas and appreciating them. And, you know, if you could give us a bunch of points to show where exactly postmodernism is at clash with, with Islam. Sure. Um, you're talking about um, society um, uh, generally agreeing, uh, for the most part, uh, pronunciation rules, um, basic ones anyway. Yes. Um, you uh, and that's something that people take in. Uh, you you should you should hear what um, a, a kind of the, the a branch of postmodernism uh, called poststructuralism, which deals with um, texts. What they say about this. They say it is completely arbitrary and should, um, in essence, has no authority uh, over us. Um, and and uh, before I answer your question, I just wanted to kind of make note something else quite interesting, which is um, so the kind of initial individualism of uh, of the Enlightenment that, that liberalism encapsulates is this freedom from state tyranny. Uh, 
in essence, freedom from the state, uh, at least uh, from oppression by the state. Mm -hmm. But uh, people didn't want to stop there. Um, it was what about oppression by, from society and repression from religion, um, these, these external forces. And so, for example, France molded itself more against protecting the individual from oppression by religion. And not by people like uh, uh, Spanish inquisitors going around and burning people at the stake. No, no, no. By just simply peer pressure um, from uh, of religious religiously influenced aspects of culture. And so, when the France, when French in, it made laws to try to, um, uh, to to ban the hijab in schools and and ban the cub in public, they cited that they were simply protecting the individual from religion, freedom from religion. Um, uh, in order for them, even if that means that there'll be people who be, have to be compelled to take off the niqab in public and remove the hijab in schools, they say ultimately it's for their freedom as individuals um, from this external force, religion, and, and also from uh, society can oppress in many ways. Obviously, as you know, um, uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, when he was trying to talk about protecting the individual's um, right to freedom of expression, he said that society can impose um, certain uh, certain repression, which is worse than the state, uh, because at least with the state, if the, you know that the police can't hear you and you want to say whatever you want to say, you can at least say it. But with if the if culture is oppressing you, uh, then you're you're scared to say what you really feel and think, even in your own private areas of your life, to in your house or to your, mm. to your friends or what have you. And and uh, but this had the opposite effect. Uh, just John Stuart Mill's argument had the opposite effect because then people said, "Ah, yes, we must go out and ensure that everyone has the freedom to express um, themselves as they want." And if someone wants to, let's say, express themselves publicly by engaging in a romantic act of uh, of kissing a same-sex partner, if someone was to say on the street, like there was, was a Christian preacher in England who said. Who was just preaching out? He said, um, "Homosexuality is a sin." He had a banner or something, or lesbianism is a sin. Uh, they got he got arrested and fined for obviously a hate crime because he said that simply expressing that is impinging the freedom of individuals to express their, themselves in in the way they want as as uh, in sexuality. So, uh, which creates a contradiction because that means that you can't express your your moral views or your religious views. Um, uh, to in order to cater for all the people's right to express themselves mm. um, uh, going out in public and let's say uh, and in identifying or, or at least um, uh, acting uh, in, 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 with romantic gestures of same-sex gestures, uh, uh, even though expressing doesn't stop those people from doing it, simply saying homosexuality is a sin doesn't physically stop anyone, but they say it creates a social oppression and in order to protect them, uh, their right not to be socially oppressed, the the people who are expressing this idea must be socially oppressed or not legally oppressed um, mm. by the state. It, it creates so many contradictions in their system, um, uh, which I I, I don't want to can enumerate so many times. Anyway, to, to go to take it back now, um, and before I do one odd observation about something you said before, which is you mentioned how we are we are so dependent on many things going right. I saw this great quote online. It was wish I had thought of it, but it didn't didn't come from me. They said that um, you're only uh, four or five minutes away from um, dying by um, asphyxiation because you're uh, like not being able to, you know, but dying through lack of oxygen, uh, except but every breath you reset it. Wow. Right? You reset that timer. <laughs> right? Wow. So I wish I thought of it. It's a really great um, 
observation. Um, but anyway, uh, so to go back to your question, then, um, so what are the other aspects of postmodernism, which has got, uh, which has um, uh, kind of infiltrated academia and infiltrated the uh, minds of many, unfortunately, Muslims who are entangled. Yeah. In and why, why is it un-Islamic? Why would we say this is contrary to the Islamic worldview? Okay, so um, I, I'm going to summarize, but you can feel free to drill down on any, any claims I've made and I can give you yes. examples and things. Also. But I feel that you, you and the audience would benefit from uh, I mean, you might really know this already, but the audience at the very least would benefit from uh, just a little bit of history to, to see where all this comes from and where the problem arises. Okay. So, so, so basically, um, as you know, you know uh, uh, the, fa the famous philosopher Hegel um, developed the ideas of um, of a kind of zeitgeist of the ideas of like Weltanschauung, um, worldview, zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. Um, the uh, uh, thesis and antithesis are two conflicting forces that produce sub they clash and they produce sub um, sublation. Uh, this was all his idea. Karl Marx came along. Uh, so it was because Hegel was was an idealist. Uh, you know, it's all about the mind. About it's it's almost very woolly and very non physical. So Karl Marx was a physicalist, very much a materialist. He transformed that into a materialist form, and he basically said, okay. History is a clash of, of conflicting, of, of two conflicting forces producing um, synthesis. Um, he argued that um, there there is there is a war between um, in it, well, uh, not necessarily a war, but a clash or, or a suppression of the working class by the ruling classes, the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie, the rich, or those who own the means of production, and the ideal is to basically liberate the workers uh, by, uh, in essence, um, equalizing the ownership, the means of production to everybody, everyone. It becomes common property of, of everybody. Uh, but he also argued that the, that, the, that was the way to liberate individuals because if you didn't have to worry about doing a particular job to make ends meet, then you're free. But if you are have to spend your nine to five or nine to six or even even more than that, worrying and working and at the behest of someone else who uses your labor and makes a lot of profit from your labor um you, you're not free yeah you're a wage slave basically that's in essence was his argument uh he made me he made a whole bunch of other arguments i'm trying to summarize it the best as i could as i can and so on anyway why is this even relevant in the first place why is the marxist perspective even yes well um he said he said uh, he said in uh, that he made this idea up, um, which is basically he said that the he's a materialist worldview. He said everything comes from you know uh, the the means of production, right? He says that how you make how you make your computers, you make your cars, uh, how the early people who uh, like cut down wood and make wooden wooden ca cabins and wooden houses and things uh, using the axe or the plow. Um, he said that the first thing that humans need to do is to, is to survive, and they survive by obviously, you know, uh, agriculture by um, you know cutting things down in, in industry. Culture comes later, and therefore he says that culture comes from the means of production uh, and making something called a superstructure or the ideology of the state. And he argued, in essence, that the ideology of the state is what justifies those in power retaining their power is the ideology which is the the, the culture the the values the worldview of the entire state system so uh, he said eventually the 
there would be the means of production will change and evolve to the next the new inventions new industries and people will see the possibility of communism the possibility that the, that you don't have to work that much to actually be happy to have all the, the food you want all the all the house you want the car whatever you want uh, you can actually uh, if you just overturn the bourgeois make a one class society uh, and and change all that and so on and so forth that be um, then everyone will be free because their material needs will not be at the behest of the bourgeois who can, who control the the the, the wealth and uh, you know make, make people dependent on wages and, and fixed routine jobs that are soulless and are soul destroying and so on and so forth you know monotonous jobs and things like that. I'm I'm heavily summarizing it just to keep it brief. So why is this why is this important? Why? Because um, Karl Marx predicted that in his view of history that there's this eventual evolution to the point where cap, you, know, you had feudalism and then you had capitalism and the next stage was communism or socialism sorry socialism and then communism where the state would own all the means of production and then distribute that equally um and then eventually the state would wither away and you'd have a pure utopian anarchy where everyone owns the means of production you all need a state that was basically Karl Marx's view he predicted that England, the most industrialized societies, would be the first to fall to socialism and, and then communism. That was his prediction. Guess what? It didn't happen. Only the, the most backwater countries at the time, or backwater countries, relatively speaking, Russia and all such countries, they're the ones that fell, but not the ones he predicted would, would, would follow. This made Marxists think to themselves, why, why did that not work out? What's going on? You know, and... And then they, they started to revise Karl Marx's predictions and his beliefs. And they said, oh, what's going on? Why aren't the workers rising up? And, and like, why wouldn't they be socialists? It's, it's for their own benefit. They should love this. Why is it not happening in the most advanced capitalist societies? And they came to the conclusion, and this is where you now you have neo-Marxists now, that the people are being controlled ideologically by the ruling class. The ruling class, um, through cultural... Um, hegemony, which is developed by Gramsci, but anyway, and and all the new new um, neo Marxists develop develop these ideas. They've been told these ideas that that are, are false ideas, false consciousness in a way, and they keep people content and happy in the oppressed lives that they're living as as exploited workers. And they're even being told that that's the natural way of this is how it's naturally meant to be. So they just think it's natural. They think it's normal. They don't rise up. Why is that now important? It's because now the fixation was there's, an, there's a ruling class, a ruling elite, and they control the culture of the society. And this culture is what um, fools the working classes, fools the people into um, subservience. So then the solution to this is we have to uh, uh, critique, as they call it, ideology critique, it's a German term, I'm not pronouncing it with a German accent, but um, we have to <laughs> refute it, we have to engage it, um, and uh, uh, and as as this this school of thought develops, it encounters existentialist ideas, and then eventually morphs into what you now call postmodernism, where they say that um, you know the the problem is we have to defeat hierarchy. Hierarchies keep people. Hierarchy usually has those who are oppressed and those who are the oppressor. So you yes. have. To, the hierarchy and in order to defeat hierarchy you have to defeat the ideology which is being propounded the cultural hegemony um, of this ruling elite you have to defeat that by attacking these ideas and, and, and so on so on and so forth and then eventually um, as, as existentialists and other and 
uh, a development a development in language called, called post-structuralism, which I'll get to in a bit, um, said that language itself encodes mindsets of oppression, is actually encoded into language, right? So the idea that light is better than dark, um, the idea that right is better than left uh, or comes first than left, um, um, uh, uh, ladies, sorry, well, so ladies and gentlemen would be is, is a, is a example where women come first, but um, they'll say that there's these all these hidden um, biases and prejudices in language itself, which also is so, part of this, this controlling so, elite. Yeah, what I'm getting here then is yeah. the because of the failure of Marx, uh, Marxist's uh, prediction or, Mark, uh, or Karl Marx's predictions, the neo Marxists uh, they came with an idea, if you like, to say, look, in order to preserve this kind of communist worldview, we have to make something up or we have to theorize that the, the those who hold the power in a society, the ideologues, they have the power and the hierarchy to disseminate these ideas, to make the working class think that they're okay, to make the working class be happy with the status quo. Now, the neo-Marxists, therefore, from what you're saying, and just correct me if I'm wrong, are now using postmodernism as a tool to remove those hierarchies to stop people thinking that capitalism is okay. Um, it, it, in essence, um, well, I suppose... Because um, uh, they're not the same thing, right? Yeah, neo-Marxists, so neo neo when, when many neo-Marxists... Um, be, uh, em embrace what would be now called post-structuralism and, and many such things, they actually morph into now what's called post-Marxists. So, um, so um, where they they uh, no they give up on on the Marxist idea of a meta-narrative, the Marxist meta-narrative. Marxism wants Marxism to be the, the dominant ideology, but many of these post-structuralists say there should be no dominant ideology. But to, to kind of reorient it back to your question before I discuss these other details. Um, so the the, the, neo, the neo Marxists, uh, like, um, uh, 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 one of the famous ones was Adorno. Uh, he asked, he basically said that one of the, the ways, in essence, to create this uh, this workers' revolution is you have to basically, obviously, destroy the uh, the, the hegemony of the ruling class. Uh, but in order to, to kind of um, accelerate that as well, you can use not just the working class as a marginalized. A group of people, but every marginalized group of people, or anyone who is not part of the dominant group, or is not represented in by the dominant group, or there exists any kind of preference against that that, that uh, for the, for the dominant group against those people, women, um, people who are who are not North European white or what have you, you can use you can mobilize all these different minorities. Uh, to join in, in that cause and, and attack um, the, this this hierarchy from all these different groups all at the same time and bring down the hierarchy. Now, here's the thing. So many Muslim academics who go into academia, because academia and the university is where these thinkers reside mostly in the humanities. They, in essence, have a, a strong showing, if not uh, an over-preponderance uh, control of the of humanities, humanities being um, the study of, of sociology and society, because as most people don't realise, Karl Marx advanced his worldview as as a economic system, political philosophy, and sociology all mixed into one. Because for him, they were all the same thing, by the way. And Marxism is a is a a sociological theory or, or lens in sociology for people who want to be sociologists. Many sociologists are Marxists, 
or, or, or and some many neo Marxists and many post Marxists. So it, they have a they they gain gain a gain a, a massive foothold in Western academia through the in humanities departments, and then many Muslims who um, are in the Western are marginalized or they feel. Uh, the, the the brunt of Islamophobia, or they might be discriminated against for other attributes they they have. They might be um, South uh, South Asian. Uh, they might be from you know Africa. They might be from um, they might be Arab. They might be whomever Turkish. It might be whomever. Um, if, if they feel that they are marginalized and discriminated against, well, guess what? These you know these these um, post Marxists or neo Marxists or those influenced by these movements will come to them. Hey. You're, you know what? We will fight for you. We're with you, and we want to, you know, defend your rights against these um, these oppressors, these discriminators, and so on and so forth. So, uh, uh, so you know what? Join us, join our movement, and here's how we're going to take down this hierarchy together. And all you have to do is just adopt the values and ideas that and the methodological tools that we're using uh, to do that. And that's why many Muslims um, fall into that because they think that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But sometimes the enemy of my enemy is just another enemy. <laughs> and, just, and, and they could they could no, be a worse enemy. They could be a much worse enemy, to be honest, especially if you look uh, into the future, the, ne the impact of these ideas, the next 5, 10, 15 years, it could create a, a, a far greater destruction. Because it, so coming back to that question that I tried to do, or the question I raised, I'll try to understand your point. So there is a distinction between the neo-Marxists and the postmodernists, but the neo-Marxists, uh, because they want to remove that kind of hierarchical dominance and oppression, which is making people feel okay with the status quo. They're using these postmodern, postmodernists, the, the postmodernist approach uh, as a tool to try and remove that hierarchy. Okay, I, I think I mean, the best way to give you the delineation of neo-Marxists and post-Marxists and so on and so forth. The reason being, because I, I, you did mention uh, uh, the Marxism, then Karl Marx made a prediction, his predictions failed, then the neo-Marx came up with the idea that uh, it's because of this dominant ideological hierarchy, this hegemony that is, you know, uh, duping du duping people to believe in, in that everything's okay and this is how it's supposed to be and this is the status quo because why aren't they uprising, right? Um, yeah. So, and then, so, so what they realized is they need to remove this hegemony, this ideological hierarchical hegemony and so that's where the link is with the postmodernist, correct? Because the postmodernism, they kind of, they kind of, if I don't know if you know, if, even if they uh, accept this terminology, but they have a metaphysic, a lens in order to understand reality, and they basically say, well, there is no objective reality, there is no absolute truth. It's only your truth in a particular context, historical, linguistic, and otherwise. And therefore, these hierarchies should not be dominant. And they therefore they should collapse. So that's how maybe the the neo Marxists would use postmodernism as a tool or an approach to remove that hegemony, in order for the predictions of Marx to come true, which is people going to uprise and people are not going to accept the kind of capitalist status quo. That's what I got from you. Um, was that totally I'll, wrong? Okay, no, no, it's not. It, um, just a very slight nuance on, on the math because it is quite chaotic. Um, and it, I know there's a lot here, bro. I'm like, whoa, there's so, there's so many <laughs> concepts to juggle, juggle uh, here. So, <laughs> just, I mean, I said it's a, it's a very, it's a big subject, but to, to, um, to simplify it um, uh, in a way. Um, so basically Marxism in essence failed. Um, it, Marxism was based on the concept of economic determinism, which, so, which is that 
um, culture, religion, society, um, social classes, everything, it just emerges epiphenomenally from the economic system. The only really physical thing is the economic system. And all this stuff is just like a, a, a some kind of ghostly admission, um, uh, um, emission that comes from, uh, it's called the superstructure. So the economic system determines everything. It determines the religion, determines even the, the, the creed of the religion. It determines culture, determines art, determines everything. It was That was Karl Marx's idea, was fully economic determinist. And, he, and change, but then change happens, change can happen because the means of production changes over time uh, as humans invent new tools and things like that. And then you get tension at society with um, a thesis, thesis, which is the, the current condition of society meets antithesis, the, the new economic realities that are arising, and then it creates synthesis. So you get mm -hmm. from feudalism to um, capitalism by um, the invention of, of the industrial revolution uh, and all the, the technology that goes into that. That's, that's basically Karl Marx's ideas. So his prediction was, the most developed um, Western uh, economies um, who have in full industrialization will, be, will, will then go to the next step. Because he argued, he said, we have enough resources for everyone on the planet to enjoy, um, you know, good food, good shelter, um, that you don't have to work so long because in, industry does a lot of it for you. So he argued that maybe you could, you don't need to really work maybe, I don't know, three or four hours a day, maybe, um, you know, um, uh, for a few days a week, because industry takes care of all of it. So then you can be an artist, you can be a, um, a, a film buff, you can, you can be um, uh, a philosophizer, you can be a fisherman, and as well as, you know, working in a factory one day or working in a, in an office all day. This was, this was Karl Marx's idea of freedom. And this was his predictions from economic determinism. But when that didn't happen, it was kind of like a big refutation to Karl Marx. It was that, yes. guess what? England, the, the, the working class are actually quite happy. And not only that, but his prediction that um, profit margins would go up and wages would, would go down until the working class, uh, as the, the bourgeois want to maximize profit as much as possible. So they're going to keep pushing down um, the wages of, of non-differentiated labor, i.e. from the workers who just go into factories, what have you. But instead, you you had you had labor rights, you had um, welfare rights, you had um, you know uh, uh, dangerous conditions had to be taken care of by the uh, by the employer and new legislation protecting workers. All these things went against Karl Marx's predictions, right? That you had social welfare, it just went against, it went against Karl Marx's predictions. He didn't account for that, didn't predict it, thought it wouldn't occur. So how to explain it then? But do, do we just throw Karl Marx's books in the bin? Well, you should have. But what some uh, some uh, Marxists did is they thought, well, you know what? Karl Marx isn't God, right? Well, they don't even believe in God. He was partly right. We just need to tweak his um, his worldview a little bit. So instead of economic determinism, they said that actually then it wasn't the economic system that creates the culture, but the culture and the ruling system is actually created by the ruling class. And it and it uh, it uh, brainwashes yes. the workers into thinking that they're in a happy um, you know condition. It's like, it's like a ideological hegemony. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. As, 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 as cultural hegemony, as as as, as well, was so, yeah. So so far, yeah, yeah. So so far, I I got that. So the point now, the link now between these that and the postmodernists, yeah, these neo-Marxists, so, are they now using postmodernist 
thinking approach in order to remove this ideological cultural hegemony, which is preventing from Marxism to manifest itself in the real world, for everyone to have this kind of utopia, uh, this freedom and this utopia. Uh, because that is what is keeping the, the masses dumb, if you like. They're keeping the masses happy with this status quo that is not good for them. It's actually oppressive because, according to the Marxist narrative, they're supposed to be uprising, right? So that my question here is, isn't the link that these uh, uh, neo-Marxists are using postmodernism now in order to, to d remove this cultural hegemony? Well, here's the irony of this, um, which is, so the neo-Marxists want to replace um, the dominant, so the, the, the dominant, um, you know, um, hegemonial um, system of ideas called, it's called ideology, they called it ideology, or Karl Marx called it ideology, but they simply want to replace that with socialism and Marxism, that's all they want to yes. do, they just replace it with their own, their own system. But to get there, aren't they using postmodernism to do that, postmodernism to do that? Okay, so initially it was simply about um, breaking down hierarchies by um, by critiquing the dominant ideology. So they developed something called critical theory, okay, which was simply about um, uh, psychoanalyzing. They were influenced by Sigmund Freud, by the way. That's what also um, made neo-Marxists neo-Marxists. They took these new new theories in on board and they started to use it. We need to psychoanalyze society. We need to psychoanalyze. We have, we have to show people that. They are subconsciously taking in ideas which have no basis in reality or, or are false ideas that they've been told by the liberal ruling elite. And we need to refute it, expose it, refute it, show them it's wrong, and then they will wake up from their stupor and so on and so forth. The problem with uh, now they're doing all this and there was, um, uh, and uh, it, to, to change the hegemony to the, the, the hegemony or the ruling by the, the, the the, was it the tyranny of the proletariat? Um, uh, d make the proletariat, the workers, be the ones in control, uh, and eventually make everyone into one class, and it and the it will be the hegemony of the ruling class, and the ruling class will now be the the, the the working classes. That's they wanted to replace the ruling system with their own ruling system to make it more simpler. Postmodernists are a little bit different um, because they're against all hegemonies yeah, sure. and all. Um, uh, all uh, uh, they, they call it grand narratives or meta narratives. Yes, and the irony is that basically many neo Marxists, um, once they did, uh, uh, they they, they uh, looked into ex the existentialism. They uh, not looked into it, but the influence from existentialists, uh, the influence um, from um, post-structuralism, which is about, about um, languages arbitrary and things like this, uh, as this, which I, I'll discuss in a bit, but this basically, in a way, you could say made them apostate <laughs> from neo-Marxism, uh, and that's why they're called post-Marxists. It's because, I mean, many of these, these uh, you know, famous uh, post-modernist um, thinkers, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, you could, uh, um, Jacques Derrida, um, who else? Uh, that, uh, that's, that's kind of, oh yeah, um, uh, Barthes and uh, many others, uh, quite a few others. Uh, they they all were they were either influenced by Marxism or they were well known Marxist philosophers in their early life or even even till till later life. These are all um, Marxists. Okay. I get it now. I get it. Um, so uh, uh, Michel Foucault. That's, no, that's not a one yeah. as well. 
famous Foucault. So, These were all Marxists. They they sure. apostated, you could say, in a way, from um, Marxism. So the so the link basically is not that they're using postmodernism as a tool to remove the hegemonical, cultural, ideological hegemony and cultural you know oppression of these masses that they somehow are happy with the status quo they're not using that is it's because in the attempt using critical theory to remove uh that ideology they somehow morphed into post-marxist and therefore morphed into now adopting a post uh modernist uh worldview if you want to call it that which is antithetical to the postmodernist i guess that's what they would argue but you know they would have the postmodern lenses so you're basically doing like a uh a, a the history of ideas so there is a link between marxism the neo-marxists and the postmodernists because a lot of the neo-marxists became postmodernists yes okay i get it so it's, okay good okay i get it now good so it was not necessarily the fact that you have neo-Marxists today that would ascribe to postmodernism. Would you? You wouldn't have that, would you? Um, and if uh, they do, they probably just do it as a postmodernism. No, the main ideas of it, no. But um, but but many of the critical tools or the um, analytical tools, sorry, of um, which was comes from postmodernism, or or let's just say a particular branch of it called post-structuralism, which is about text, how you want you read texts, has has influenced so on everyone so much now that I mean, as I said, most of the of the of viewers to, and everyone today, if you use the word narrative a lot, like we need to talk about narratives, narratives. This is from postmodernist um, thinkers. They popularized that that using that okay, term so to refer to stories yeah. are to, that are popular and are told and authoritative um, in sure. society. So one yeah. would argue then that there could be that some post, some neo-Marxists can use some post-modernist thinking in the as attempt, tool, yeah. yeah, yeah, as a tool in the attempt to basically remove the cultural hegemony or the ideological hegemony that's based on some kind of hierarchy, of course, yeah. uh, in order for the the working class to rise up and realize that they should fulfill this Marxist dream. Yeah, okay, so. The minute the minute they uh, the minute a neo-Marxist says, you know what, uh, there shouldn't be a ruling um, uh, a, a ruling um, ideology anymore. Um, they cease being neo-Marxist and they, they then be, and they then become, you could say, um, post-Marxist. When they, as soon as they reject meta-narratives or any particular ruling system, in another way, the way to put a post-modernist to you forward to you is, in a way, they're kind of like a a political existentialist maybe be the best way of maybe a good a way to better understand it a political existentialist that the true liberation of the individual from in society from all narratives uh, imposed upon them from all um authorities whether it's linguistic authorities whether it's morality authorities worldview authorities complete freedom and um sovereignty of the individual against all these things in society which evolves which means that there can't be one dominant culture in that society that makes you in a way you could say a post-marxist yeah man look this is like the deification of man that's what it is they want man to be absolutely free and he can never be absolutely free this is a feature of divinity allah is al-ghani he's al-samad he's the absolutely free he's he is totally independent self-subsisting this is this is this is shaitan's work bro <laughs> <laughs> this is shaitan's work
Do you know what? I'll, I'll just just to highlight something, so, just so you understand it uh, even better, was when you said um, he, when referring to man or like mankind, mm. have you? Um, the the postmodernist or the post structuralist would simply say that um, you're you could have said she, right? But you picked he, mm. and so in essence, you've given a privilege to picking one particular description, uh, descriptor, or, or, or gender um, uh, gender of, of of a word, gendered word, over. The other, which in your mind, um, in essence, show they'll say that you um, give um, uh, men males more privilege than females, which is a narrative which is in has been inculcated in your mind, and it's part of a the system, uh, um, uh, part of the hierarchical structures that you were raised with, and you need to liberate yourself from, and it's it's um, it's uh, socialistic, and th th that's in essence that the kind of arguments they will make for, from that basis. And of so, course, when you ask me about, is there, is, there, is there a good chronic verse you could say um, that might respond, which is um, hierarchy is natural in the Quran. What does it say about this? It says that you know Allah has raised some people to you know uh, above others uh, to, to to test them by what they've been given them, sure, whether, sure. They, whether they will be of service to other people. To paraphrase, um, so well, we, have, we, have, we have social hierarchies too, like even with the family, like you know the role of. You know the husband and the wife there is an, an obvious hierarchy there yes it's a complementarian system but there is a form of a hierarchy so it, um, in islam you know, but not, not for the not for post-marxist yeah for sure for sure now okay because there's a lot here bro i think the the next question which is very important is well then let's focus on some key particular manifestations of postmodernism. You know what particular manifestations of postmodernism are more most prominent now because i want to link this to critical race theory, I want to link this to how to avoid the kind of epistemic and metaphysical pitfalls or lizard holes, if you like, you know, we don't want Muslims in, you know, sharing Islam academically, intellectually, and we don't want, you know, Muslims in general adopting these worldviews, these perspectives that are alien to the Islamic tradition. And so I think the next question is important is, well, let's focus on key prominent manifestations of postmodernism. And then let's continue the conversation, how to deal with them. And then I want to bring in critical race theory, inshallah. Yeah? Okay. So um, the, the, the neo-Marxists, in their attempt to uh, to take down the the, the man, <laughs> the system, um, it was they they uh, they argued. So uh, Theodor Adorno and Horkheimer and, and uh, Herbert Marcuse and many others, which were the kind of the neo-Marxists who set up what's called the Frankfurt School. Um, they uh, they talked about the need to engage um, any minority or, or disenfranchised uh, classification or grouping. Uh, so uh, women, for example, uh, people who have disabilities, uh, anyone who is basically um, uh, not what they deem to be part of, deemed to be the, the normal for that society or the, the, the privileged group in that society, um, sh should be engaged and, in essence, uh, the the if if everyone was made equal culturally equal across the board, if everyone was made absolutely equal um, and there was no differentiation between them, uh, then what you 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 would take down the system automatically because then if the system has no hierarchy, then there is no more ruling uh, ruling bourgeois class anymore. Everyone becomes one class, right? So the working class is, is one group that the Marxists cared about the most because that's that was their that's their group. Um, but they were going to use multiple different groups. Uh, to do to co they're going to co-op them and they're going to use them to take down the same system. So, 
it, they were viewed that if they can take down a, the patriarchy, a, a male-dominated or the male-dominated uh, system, uh, and make women equal to men in all ways, this would get them closer to that absolute equality that they want, the one-class system of, uh, of everyone's the proletariat, for example. Mm. That, that was their, their goal. Um, okay, so then how does it manifest? Well, now, we know, for example, feminism is one particular um, case. Now, feminism has... Uh, feminism is really a term in the West. I suppose that the best translation I'll say for feminism, if you'd like to really understand it, is because because liberals can be feminists too. Um, is feminism simply women too? Uh, is with the best way of putting it. So if you're a liberal, and when the liberals brought in liberalism, they first brought it only for men. First, they, they said like men have these rights and they can vote. Well, men of a certain um, amount that owns a certain class, they have certain wealth and they have a certain class. Um, so but then eventually women should also be able to vote too. You know, women should also have these right property rights too. That's what feminism was initially. So the socialists and Marxists and others, when they um, in, in get, kind of try to invoke or get feminism um, co-opted for themselves, and, and there's now Marxist feminism, socialist feminism, the, uh, Karl Marx argued that um, the family unit uh, of the, 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 the husband and the wife and so on is actually a microcosm of capitalist society. The way you have the, the, the bourgeois class, the men, um, getting free labor or enjoying or exploiting the labor of those subordinate to him in the, in the, in the family. So this was actually, you know, Karl Marx is making, making an argument like this. So then the idea that women um, weren't working in having jobs and or going out to, to in the factories and things like that. So the Marxists were like, we need to actually make women equal, that they should, we should change the culture of society such that women will no longer financially depend on men. And if they don't depend on men, just like if the workers don't depend on the bourgeois, ultimately, uh, the, the, man, the factory managers, but they can you know, um, own the means of production themselves, they'll be free. Likewise, if women had access to working in the factory <laughs> um, uh, and getting money for themselves, they would be free because they would be free from um, depending on men mm. uh, as well. So they should. So this kind of idea that women could only be free truly if they were doing a nine to five slog in the factory, um, like, like men were doing, or, or in reality it was maybe nine to eight because it was long hours back then. Um, that somehow frees women is something that these neo-Marxists kind of, you know, uh, push. And eventually the idea of the family structure was viewed as a, as a microcosm of capitalism. And therefore the nuclear family, the traditional family, uh, was to be um, discouraged as a norm. So they, they don't say it's wrong to do it, to have a, a traditional family. They say that it can't be normalized. Uh, you can have, they'll say, you should, we should promote every type of family structure, any arrangement of family, whether it's single mother or single father or, or uh, two fathers or two mothers, whatever you, we, we, we want to make it, um, there is no normal family. And so they, so when they attacked the nuclear family, it wasn't to say we want to ban it or abolish it. No, no, no. They just wanted to make it morally equal to any other kind of family, even no family, right? Because That's this will help them in, the, the eventual destruction of any type of hierarchy. Um, yes, um, gender. But, but this, this therefore is not only the postmodern, the post. Um, this, this is not only the neo Marxist uh, approach. This is the postmodernist approach too. Yes. So the, I because mean, they, the, because they both want to remove hierarchy. The postmodernists want to remove hierarchy and these kind of structures in order to have their kind of I don't know, just allow the individual to be as free as they want. 
And which in reality he's not really free because you mentioned earlier he's going to be a slave to his kind of shahawat, his blameworthy desires. But, yeah. but the post, the post, the post, the, the mark, the neo Marxist wants to remove hierarchy because they want Marxism to manifest itself, and that can only happen if you remove the current hierarchy because that's what's creating the cultural uh, hegemony, which is preventing people from uprising. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, so really, you have you have really intelligently because I've listened to a few people uh, talking about these concepts, and I haven't really understood it, but I've, I think I'm getting it now. So, I know it's been messy, but yeah, it's been very, very transformative intellectually. So, so you could really summarize this by saying the neo-Marxists they want to do what the postmodernists want to do, but they but they their but their ends are different. For the neo-Marxist, he wants he or she <laughs> wants to remove the cultural hegemony. Therefore, the hierarchies, the structures, the hegemonic hegem you know what I mean. The Speak word, bro. <laughs> yeah, sorry, bro. I'm tongue twisted now. The hegemonic structures in society, because those are creating the cultural dominance and the cultural propaganda if you like an ideological propaganda that's keeping those working class people from uprising so that's why they want to remove it and that uprising would give you that marxist utopia but for the yeah. postmodernists they they want to achieve that remove that hierarchy for their own reasons and you've mentioned it before concerning there is no absolute truth there's no mind independent values no mind independent truth um, things are based on your own personal, historical, social, cultural, linguistic conduct, which is not truth as well, blah, 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 blah. So they will remove all of that in order for the individual to be as free as possible. So they're yeah. using the cell. Okay, good. So they're both very dangerous then. Like the the postmodernist, um, or you could say the post-Marxist, um, they want to create a cultural anarchy in a way. Um, as in, there is no one authority. Every individual is, is, a, is a culture unto themselves. Um, so uh, you're so there is what no I'm seeing as, yes, Whereas, what I'm seeing as, the neo Marxists want to want to destroy the existing hierarchy to replace it with a, a one class, um, yes, uh, high, uh, okay, good domination. So, what, what I'm getting from here now is that the most prominent manifestation of post of neo Marxism and post modernism is really the destruction of hierarchy, and from an Islamic point of view, it's the destru destruction of. Uh, our social political model is the destruction of the family. It's the destru destruction of the social model of Islam. Yani, more than it's that, the, the, it's the, the destruction of uh, the Arabic language uh, in in, a, in its in its preeminent role. They'll still the postmodernist would argue there's no they, hermeneutics. Uh, well, no, no, no. What they would say is they'll say that um, Islam is in in engenders a the cultural hegemony of um, Arabic and Arabic culture. Oh, so they'll say that Islam is, a, is in, in a way the domination by Arabs over non-Arabs because it, it it gives privilege to the Arabic language um, over other languages because so, so, like, it's the language of the Quran, the revelation itself. Yeah, but this, this is why we have to be very careful. So when people in the da'wah sharing and defending Islam academically, intellectually, when Muslims in, in the academic space, they need to really understand the dangers of these ideas. Oh yeah, um, I mean, I can give you other examples. Um, I've actually encountered uh, Muslims who 
argue that Muslim civilization or Islamic civilization, um, it was anti-black, um, was racist. Now, yes, there were cases of, of um, uh, ethnic preeminence of Arabs at one point, uh, and then they were overturned by the Abbasid revolution because it was anti-Islamic. It was against Islam to do so. Um, and, uh, and also the fact that um, the Arabs weren't, uh, it wasn't anti-black per se, it was um, the, at least the Umayyads anyway, it was more like um, uh, pro-Arab against non-Arab, not against black, because they had, they had slaves who were Slavs, East European Slavs, who were viewed to be inferior, uh, inferior types of Bani Adam, uh, inferior peop peoples, white slave, white East Europeans. Yeah? Uh, everyone forgets that, that uh, the, the Arabs thought they, or at least the Umayyads anyway, uh, maybe thought they were the more preeminent um, group of people. And um, a lot of these neo-Marxists, post-Marxists, would, would, would uh, if they were to apply exact same mythology, and some have, to Islamic civilization history, as well as um, Islam itself, they'll say that this is pro-Arab, it is Arab privilege, Arab supremacy, Arab superiority, um, and, uh, and and you can't, uh, and this must be cut out of Islam if, they, if the Muslims are to be liberated, it must be, this pro-Arabness must be cut out, right? And obviously we, we act aghast to this, and look, you know, I'm, you know, we're, we're both, uh, well, I'm Portuguese and you're um, Greek, we're, we're not uh, strictly Middle Eastern Arabs per se, although our ancestries have all kinds of mixes, Yes. Um, but for us, ethnicity is, is irrelevant. It's, it's, um, the, the Quran came in the, it's going to come in some language, it's not going to come in gobbledygook, it has to come in language <laughs> of existing people, of course. It doesn't matter if it's, uh, uh, it could be, I don't care if it was in Swahili, in Turkish, in, in uh, Mongolian, um, as long as uh, Allah chooses whatever prophet he wants to send and to whatever people he wants to send it to and whatever language that he wants to um, reveal his will in. And we accept that. It's irrelevant, which... Uh, and, and the meaning of that language can can be understood with the language that, you know, you may not know Arabic, but you can know the meaning of these words by virtue of translation. And the Islamic concepts and values and ideas are universal and they can be translated at least uh, on uh, in, in a simple form uh, in, in any language. But the, the issue here is this. Why is it the case, therefore, that some... Muslim activists are adopting this or some Muslims in academia are adopting this. Is it because they cannot see the Islamic solutions? They can't see what Allah is telling them or how or what Allah expects from them in their current context? Because, you know, the whole idea of having taqwa, the whole idea of having iman, having God consciousness and having iman is to ask yourself the question, what does Allah want from me? What is most pleasing to Allah in my particular context? So you have this you have this person who's showing and defending Islam, you have this academic who's in the academy and he's Muslim and all of these ideas are now coming to them, right? How do they now, obviously they feel that maybe neo-Marxism and postmodernism is a way to remove the hierarchy that's going to give the Muslim a sense of freedom but they don't see where this is leading and they may be genuine it may come from a position of ikhlas or sincerity but the issue here is if they're adopting these alien worldviews, which are very easily understood to be extremely problematic, just what you've just described, bro. These are the most dangerous ideas for the Muslims, very dangerous. And they must be intellectually fought, yeah, because you're destroying uh, cr uh, key critical aspects of divine guidance. The political authority, the social authority, language itself, the understanding of the Quran, the understanding of the Prophet, the understanding of truth itself, the understanding of morality, right? 
all of these things are totally decimated by virtue of these uh, worldviews, these ideas, neo-Marxism, postmodernism. So, uh, see, the, the key point I'm trying to raise here is, what do we give them as a replacement? They want tools, bro. Du'at want tools. People in academia want tools. Let's assume, and we should assume, and many are, let's assume they're sincere. They want these tools. But all they could see now is a, a dominant intellectual space of postmodernism uh, and neo-Marxism, and they, they think they could use it to achieve a certain goal for them and the community, but they can't see where it's leading them. Well, what do we give them, bro? Well, I mean, um, just to add to that, which is, um, you know, uh, the, the, these postmodernist uh, and existentialist um, concepts uh, from both neo-Marxism and most, uh, well, post-Marxism majoritarily, they hold the ideas, for example, um, post-Marxism hold, hold the ideas, there is no absolute um, interpretation or truth. So the Quran can be interpreted any which way you want. Um, and that's equally valid if you want to go... So, uh, I mean, it needn't even be a non-contradictory interpretation. If you, some people say, I'm going to interpret the Quran, uh, and some Muslims have Muslims have said that they want to interpret the Quran in the way of um, of uh, justifying uh, same-sex intercourse, for example. Um, there's one particular feminist um, uh, Muslim uh, who argued that in some aspects of the Quran concerning gender roles and what have you, um, we, she says we have to learn to say no to the Quran at times. What? Say, uh, yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, well, you know what? I'm going to just say it because this is factually what she, uh, she says. So it's Amina Wadud um, was one of the, was that was the individual question. So that to, to say no to the Quran um, it, on, on some aspects of, of it, presumably concerning gender, because that's what she, she's um, involved uh, much writing in. Um, uh, and also the idea that to say that there is kufar, those who are who reject the truth are morally wrong for doing so and will be punished will be will be challenged by these postmodernists simply saying that um how dare you impose uh, your uh, meta narrative on other people's um that, that's your truth everyone's truth is equal and it's not that you you say look i look i have my truth and you know lakum you know to you your uh, dean and your your practice your way of life to me my practice my way of life but i will believe that i will believe that you're wrong but i'm not going to physically force you to become Muslim, that's no longer sufficient. To merely say that your way of life is superior is the truth is a would be considered to be a a type of microaggression, um, from what I was using their terminology, um, uh, in that you're now imposing, you're now restricting, you're now uh, oppressing other people, even though you're not physically doing it, you're not forcing them, you're not hurting them, you're not insulting them. But just how did they how did they run away from the idea that of of their truth that they also obviously have to believe in the truth that there is no absolute truth so how do they how do they escape that well i mean the contradiction obviously you know that's the that's the that's the funniest uh, that's the funny thing about the famous saying is there's no absolute uh, there's no absolute truth absolutely uh, there's, there's absolutely no absolute truth um uh well of course it's a self-contradiction um but for, for them they they say it's irrelevant um it's irrelevant uh what individuals think is the truth to any other individual right it's just irrelevant right so your interpretation of reality is your way and there's no way you can ever uh you could ever convince another person to see reality the same way you see reality so they say that truth is your truth 
Okay. Mm. Uh, they also have terms like lived experience. They'll say that, for example, uh, if you produce um, an, a worldview or you think you have a, an idea um, based on your experiences, uh, they'll say that uh, it, is, uh, it is just your lived experience and you can't really make someone else have a different lived experience and much, therefore you can't tell them to have a different conclusion um, about okay, reality. So, so, how do we, so how do we empower these academics, the Muslim du'at, you want to share Islam academically and, and intellectually to obviously realize how postmodernism and um, and neo-Marxism is 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 fundamentally problematic. So how do we empower them to recognize that and to give them an alternative from our tradition, bro? This is important. How do we do that? What do we what do we do? What do we say to them? Well, see, one of the problems of this is that um, the, the the worst falsehoods are 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 kind of sugar-coated in in parts of truth so some of so basically uh, what you might call postmodernism or post-structuralism is dressed in the garb of respectability as a objective analytical tool even ironically objective how could it be objective if it says that everything's objective but anyway um it it, it promises to give you hidden secret truths in cultural texts uh that you analyze uh, it's almost like i call it the materialist bartania you know the Bartania yeah. of the Muslim history, who they they reckon they could claim they could see a hidden esoteric truths in yes. the Quran and Sunnah, which people couldn't uh, wouldn't see clearly. But they say, oh, but you know, we can just show you that this, this is what it really means here, and so on and so forth. It gives you hidden truths. It promises hidden truths. It's very enticing um, to uh, to people who encounter Muslim academics who don't know uh, any better, uh, because it, it promises to help them with their analytical. Um, uh, abilities and so on and so forth. So, for example, I just give you one example um, of this. So they'll say uh, they'll say things like uh, that the uh, American political system uh, was designed with the object of suppressing um, African Americans. That's what it was designed primarily to do: suppress African Americans. In fact, all Western systems um, um, are designed to give white white people supremacy or what have you. But when many of these political systems emerged at times before colonialism, before their people even left the shores of their countries. And so these countries like England or uh, Poland or Lithuania, what have you, they didn't really design systems with the idea of giving privilege to people of a particular skin color. Right. Um, but the argument is, oh, but this is um, it, it's in, it's assumed it's it's a it's a given from their worldview that they're going to they, they refer to their own people. And so, well, um, like I just give you an example, if that were true. If that were true, there was a case, a legal case, I believe it was in the 18th century, where there was a slave ship and it came to um, uh, uh, Plymouth in uh, in England before going off to North American colonies. And um, a, a slave from West Africa jumped off the ship and you know tried to escape uh, into England and obviously was captured. So th there was a legal case uh, because... Uh, the, the slave owner owner wanted to have that this uh, well, he fought with his slave back, but there was an argument saying that. But is does he count as a property of the slave as property of the owner according to the English legal system in England? And ultimately, it was found that no, it, it, there is no precedence in England for slavery um, uh, in, in the law in the law system, and therefore the slave was free to go. Because he had escaped from the ship, and this way he got the famous saying that um, uh, uh, from that case was no person may breathe the air of England, and uh, and and uh, uh, anyone who breathes the air of England um, is free, right? 
uh, because that, that was a legal prisoner because because they didn't have le a law for slavery in England. It was for for property rights or in in these colony territories, which is different jur legal jurisdiction. So that just gives you an example of um, how giving it like a an, the, these hidden um, uh, the, these kind of uh, uh, hidden uh, the so-called promise of hidden narratives, uh, which explain in almost conspiratorially. Um, mm. what really is a haphazard historical phenomenon. I mean, yes, like slavery existed. Yes, slavery was justified um, uh, and, and it involved, it was justified by liberalism, uh, by, by the way, and it was justified through a number of means, one of them being um, that slaves were, were prisoners of war. John Locke used that argument. Another one was that um, slaves um, don't deserve equal human rights because they weren't equally human. That was not a justification that was given for slavery. These things are factually true. That happened in, in, in America. No one would disagree that that, it was factually the case that America initiated those two justifications to imprison uh, human beings and uh, force them into almost industrial-like conditions, a slavery of industrial-like conditions. Um, but the idea that there was some kind of, um, uh, you know, slavery was this deliberate system concocted by a particular race to enslave another race, it historically doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't fit, unfortunately, you know, uh, human history because. Uh, the Romans took slaves, and they took slaves of all kinds of different ethnicities and so on and so forth. The, the Greeks uh, <laughs> took slaves uh, of all kinds. Uh, uh, the idea that um, the West somehow is especially um, white-centric, or not white-centric, sorry, but it's white supremacist as opposed to na nationally supremacist or nationally... Okay, good. So you, you're giving an example here of how some you know, Muslim academics may be have an affinity, right, a natural inclination towards neo-Marxist or postmodern modernist thinking because it unpacks the kind of um, visible lived oppression that Muslims and people of color, color face. And because a Muslim may have this very basic understanding of Islamic morality and say, yes, of course, we should defend the oppressors, which, uh, sorry, uh, defend the oppressed rather, uh, and that wasn't a Freudian slip. Uh, we should defend the the uh, oppressed and fight against the oppressors. You know they'll have that understanding and they'll be driven maybe from a very basic uh, Islamic moral basis, but then they'll adopt these ideologies to try and dismantle what they think is the system that produces this type of oppression and racism and, and in the modern in the in historically and in the modern world. But what we've been uncovering in this conversation that. In actual fact, this is problematic because the neo-Marxists want that Marxist utopia and they want all hierarchy and I cultural ideology to 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 be uh, destroyed uh, in order to have the Marxist utopia. Yeah. And then you have the postmodernists who want all hierarchy uh, to be destroyed in order for to have the, the individual to pursue their own perception of what it means to be uh, free or absolutely free. And both of those ends are very problematic from a design perspective, but they don't see it. They just see, you know, they only see what's in, in front of their faces. They don't see the impact of these ideas. So, I mean, yeah, they the, need to be warned. But the thing is, I'm, I'm trying to get at this, bro, is what do they do then? Obviously, we would say to them, they should, they should, they should follow the Quran and the Sunnah and the classical understanding of Islam. But that's a bit, that's sloganeering, bro. We don't want to have slogans here. We want to give them something. Specifics. Where do they go? The yeah. specifics. Maybe we should use, because this is linking to what you're saying about racism and about this kind of white supremacy. This links to critical race theory. Maybe use critical race theory, linking it to the postmodern discourse 
and use it as an example of how people think, look, this is great. We're actually now fighting against the white oppressor. The colonizers, they messed us up from like all the way from Bangladesh, India, Africa, all around the world. And, you know, we're suffering from post-colonial trauma. It's because of the white man, right? Critical race theory is saying it's the white man. There's this inherent political sin, if you like. That means so um, post-colonial, uh, they, they, um, they, they call it post-colonial theory the, the, when it applies to um, uh, the Western colonization of the world. They call it post-colonial. Okay, brilliant. So, so let's use critical race theory as an example of all of this, bro. I think this would really, you know, it would be a good end as well, of uh, the, the, the end part of this podcast, to now tie in all of these ideas. So you've got this a Muslim intellectual, more Muslim activist that wants to share and defend Islam academically and intellectually. You've got this Muslim academic. They've bought into some of the kind of neo-Marxist postmodern ideas because, you know, they think these hierarchies need to go. go because, look, Muslims are going to get their, their sense of freedom and sense of identity back. Um, and now let's now use critical race theory as an example of them adopting these type of ideas. And let's show why it's wrong, what the implications are, whites against the Islamic worldview, and what we should adopt in order to solve this problem. Okay, so so basically, yeah, um, many Muslim students, just not even academics, but students that go to universities, um, they, young people want to change the world for the better. They want to improve it. They want to do something. They want to find their place in it. Now, if, if Muslims tell the kids, um, like, oh, don't get involved in Islamic activism or stay away from um, movements or groups which are peaceful but they are islamically active and they they use islamic politics and islamic worldview and system so if they keep them away from that the kids are going to go to university and they're going to be co-opted by people who say we'll give you a system you hate injustice great we will define for you what justice and injustice is and we'll give you uh, the tools and we'll give you a movement to join for you to fight against it and that's what will happen if you don't give them there's a sorry there's a famous uh, phrase that christians say the devil makes work for idle hands and uh, that's what was happening now um so critical race theory uh, more specifically and, and I'll, I'll use it to kind of highlight um what i'm just saying now first and foremost I, there's two big caveats that, or disclaimers i must give and i must be very very clear about it because mm -hmm. the, the nature of these ideologies are for example if you criticize um neo-marxists or marxists they'll say um you you support the bourgeois capitalists right i say no i don't I just don't think that your solution to the problem is going to work, and it will make things yeah. worse, probably. Um, likewise, if you criticize feminism, they say you're a misogynist, you hate women. I say, no, I don't. I just think that Islam gives um, better rights for men and women, and that it's not about gender anymore. It's about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who is, has no gender, um, yes. but we are all under his agenda, right? So we, know, and we, must, we must subscribe to that. So, so to this, I'll say this. Um, the 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 statistics of racism the uh gender the, the, sorry, the um, income disparity the disparity of opportunity the pr police brutality against african americans or black americans because the, the, the nomenclature has changed uh this is not in dispute we all agree with the we can see these statistics it's quite evident racism is, is rampant in the united states of america there's racism in uk racism in france racism in all, in all these countries there is no dispute about the documented, observed statistics, observed phenomena. That's not where we, there's no dispute on these. We all accept it. Now the question is, 
how to explain it and what's the solution. That's where we're going to have difference of opinion. Not that it exists, uh, whether it exists or not. No, we all, um, anyone who's reasonable would, of course, agree it exists and it's, it is endemic. It is, it is an epidemic um, in in, uh, in these, these, these states. That That's my first disclaimer. Um, the uh, the second disclaimer is, oh, no, 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 I skipped my head now. <laughs> I'll probably, probably come to me in a sec. Um, Anyway, that's that's at least the first disclaimer I must I must uh, make, yeah, make absolutely clear. Oh yes, the second disclaimer is this: um, the other counter argument they use because they don't understand anyone that comes from an Islamic perspective, uh, even Muslims, unfortunately. So they'll say, "Oh, you support the conservatives, or you support Jordan Peterson randomly because Jordan P, or you support the the mainstream liberals uh, or the bourgeois capitalists." Um, we'll say no because we criticize them. Uh, we started criticizing them first, actually. You know, um, you yourself, you started debating, um, you know, mainstream liberalism. Um, you know, one of the one of the first to do so in the, in the UK, and and many others followed afterwards. So we we refute them. Uh, we we're not conservative, uh, con uh, which is an Enlightenment school of thought, um, which is where, long story short, basically, it still believes in individualism and and liberal and liberal values, but it believes that tradition or institu traditional institutions. Are what is required to keep a stable society to enjoy mm. your individual freedom. Long story short, we don't believe that as Muslims, right? The Prophet Muhammad uh, uh, wasn't a conservative. He didn't conserve the traditions of the pagan Arabs. Yeah, some of it was from Ibrahim and survived. Okay, a lot of it was added on later. They're not to be conserved. He was for change. So as Muslims, we change what is monka, and we call to what is ma'roof. And if the ma'roof is is new for these people at any point in time. So be it, we'll be people, we'll be bringing in new things, right? Also, mm, sure. their original religion, but they're not new. But anyway, we, we change what we have to change. We keep what we have to keep according to the criteria, the Furqan of, of the Dean. Anyway, so, yeah, um, I've, I've criticized Jordan Peterson um, on uh, on a blog and so on and so forth. And and, and many Muslims obviously has, has, has engaged him and uh, discussed with him. Ironically, Jordan Peterson is influenced by Nietzsche, funnily enough, but that's a different discussion. Anyway. No, those two disclaimers aside, critical race theory is um, emerged from um, from uh, neo Marxist discourse. Some would say it, so. It's heavily influenced. It's not necessarily post Marxist, but uh, you can be a post Marxist and be uh, using critical race theory, or you can be um, a, a not post Marxist or not um, post modern and use critical race theory. You don't have to be a post modernist per se, but it's heavily uh, involved. So, what does it say? And basically, is this. So the Marxists made their view of society all about the working class as the oppressed class against the proletariat. And they explained all social phenomena as a fight between the bourgeois and the working class. So then you had these um, feminisms that arose, that um, uh, critical gender studies and what have you, that said, no, no, uh, they didn't discard that. They simply said, oh, and there's also a battle, a binary, uh, which is also funnily a postmodernist um uh, no, no, a binary between the patriarchy, the ruling male class, and women who are the oppressed class. And critical race theory says, um, actually, our lens is the, the binary between the uh, white supremacy and um, the uh, marginalized minorities, um, which could be either be African-Americans or black Americans or Hispanics or, or whomever. So the, these two. That's critical race theory. Um, it's 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 
is involved in it is, is both a drive to change that as well as uh, to explain it. So it would explain racism as simply um, the the active suppression uh, and maintenance of the system by the white uh, the, the white uh, supremacy, and it would uh, and it tries to explain things like the civil rights movements that and the changes that came up with the civil rights, which actually granted. It eliminated segregation in the southern states of America. The northern states didn't have segregation, but the southern states did after the Civil War. Or and explains the emancipation of African Americans or Black Americans um, from slavery simply as um, it was an economic necessity designed to make Black, black Americans, African Americans, feel free. But secretly, they were going to be even more oppressed than before. All right, that's one of the the, the tenets of. Um, critical race theory. It says that racism is part of the structure of um, American society and all Western, Western governments and society. It's actually part of the, they call it structural racism, not institutional racism, structural racism, which ironically came from the Marxists. They were the first to make that, use that term structural racist, which comes from Marxist, um, uh, Marxist understanding of, of a structure that arises from the economic system. And so the solutions to this, they say it, it, it could be caused by the, the wealth inequality. So if the, the, the African-Americans or black Americans are not owning um, an equal proportion of their resources in America, the, the economic disparity will lead to, um, uh, will, will create social domination against blacks or, or African-Americans. Or uh, they'll say that um, in order to have true social justice, you need to, uh, um, have um, reparations for slavery and redistribution of, of the wealth uh, to the uh, African-Americans or black Americans. And now feminists will say redistribution of wealth from to make equal between males and females. And of course, um, the Marx, the proper Marxists will say, and, neo, and some neo-Marxists will say simply the redistribution of wealth from the bourgeois uh, make equal to the proletariat. So everyone has the same kind of wealth. Morally. So you see the same... Um, uh, the same uh, solutions and same and similar analysis is used by neo-Marxists and uh, by uh, you know critical gender studies people or uh, critical race theory and so on and so forth. But but the, the difference is that Marxists will actually criticize critical race theory, saying, "Look, uh, we, we we think that racism can be explained as a as something uh, between the dynamic of the bourgeois and the class uh, is, is, is class warfare." We can use our, our model to explain it, whereas critical race theorists say, no, no, our model explains it, which is it's actually a fight between races, not a fight between classes. Right. That's where you get the divergent opinions between the two. So Marxists will criticize critical race theories. Critical race theories will criticize Marxists, um, even though they have sometimes very similar ideas um, that, that uh, they, they link to uh, each other. Now, postmodernist um, critical race theorists will say that language itself encodes racism. So if you say that, um, uh, you know, uh, darkness uh, and light, darkness is bad, light, lightness or light is good. Um, so the, the, the terminology used in the Quran, by the way, from darkness to light, yeah? Uh, they'll say that that encodes a racism, that dark is bad and light is good. And, that's and that gives you subconsciously the idea that black people are bad uh, and are inferior to, to white people. They will make that kind of argument. And they could then you level that against the Quran itself and say that the Quran itself actually has these tropes, even though the idea of darkness and light is a, is a well-known Semitic trope from, from all the Abrahamic religions, um, 
uh, going up to almost even the Sumerians. The idea that it's not about skin color, it's about the fact that if there's no light, you can't see where you're going, you're blind effectively. And isn't it good to see what, what's happening around, to see reality around you? So that's where it comes from. But they would simply they could argue, no, no, it secretly encodes white supremacy in that in that in those that that binary um, descriptions of lightness being better than darkness. So critical race theory will, will argue that um, any time the American government or any Western government make, makes any laws that um, bans racism, bans racial hate, it's secretly um, uh, it's secretly hiding its racism. It's it's going to it's secretly exploiting the, the minority to make them even more oppressed. And um, but by making them think that there's no more racism, but secretly there is racism going on. So they'll say it's all insidious. It's all a uh, a hidden plan. It's almost like a conspiracy theory. And look, here's the thing. Um, look, you know, we're no big fans of liberalism, but liberals do believe, at least today, that racism is bad and they are against it and they're against racial hate. Um, but but and they're going to implement policies against it. They're not going to implement wealth re re uh, redistribution policies, just, you know, like take money from the rich and or take money from any old white person based on their race and give it to people of a different race. Because that's that's liberalism can't do that because that would be racist according to liberalism's own view. But critical race theorists will say no, no, no. That's what we call white fragility. Um, that's where white people, where as soon as you ask them to do something that will redress the inequality in society uh, and remove their privilege, they get all um, defensive about it, what have you. And you say no, it's not white fragility. It's just liberals can't justify that from their own worldview. Right? They don't that you can take people money from people based on race. Uh, they 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 can't justify that. They find it difficult. Mm -hmm. they, can't, they can't. So so the problem with critical race theory, uh, uh, not that uh, in areas where, because um, many Muslims who will know some of this stuff and they'll say, look, Abdullah, what is wrong with simply believing that the West is coordinated to to be white supremacist? Right. I mean, surely. That's not that's not haram. Like it's not against Islam to believe that there's a you know a white supremacist conspiracy de deliberately uh, sewn in. I said, look, no, it's not haram per se. If you want to take just that element of critical race theory, and that's not the only element it has, by the way, but it it, it obscures your ability to analyze reality itself because mm. we have a better explanation. Ibn Khaldun has better explanation for this, which is um, you can explain not just. Racism in America um, or in any nation state, um, uh, for, uh, but from the Islamic perspective, but throughout history, um, Asabiya and Kibr, right? The idea that you give yeah, tribute na nationalism and arrogance, yeah, yeah, nationalism or tribalism or like my in group is is like better, or I'm going to give them privilege than your than other groups, and Kibr arrogance, right? And I'm going to give you an example. And um, uh, which uh, uh, will be pertinent to, to your, um, your your background, but not, not to you, uh, which yeah. is um, the ancient Greeks. Right. So the ancient Greeks, um, we, we have this interesting narrative about how they view themselves in the world relative to the barbarians. Um, they thought that the uh, the ones to the north of them, so basically Euro white Europeans, you know, uh, th those to the north of them were basically just really passionate, but didn't have intellect. They were like, like just savages, basically. And that in the South, in Egypt, they were very intellectual, very clever, because of course they were clever, very advanced civilization, but they were very cold. They didn't have passion, right? So the Greeks were the perfect mix, right? Of both passion and intellect, right? 
that's how they viewed uh, they viewed themselves. <laughs> yeah, I, I see no denial from Hams on that. Just a curious silence. So, it is what it is, bro. It is what it is. <laughs> right, um, <laughs> some of my Egyptian friends would used to tell me that Egyptians are very passionate. So I don't, so um, it's funny that ancient groups would describe Egyptians as being cold and calculating. Right? Yeah. Um, so anyway. But my point is that historically, I mean, even to ancient China, they would call themselves, the ancient Chinese would call themselves the Middle Kingdom. Everyone else are like the, the barbarians. Every uh, race or ethnicity or even tribe thought they were the best and everyone mm. else was not as best good as them, kibber, or they would um, they would privilege themselves over all the people, uh, as the Bed famous Bedouin saying, uh, me against my brother, me and my brother against my cousin, me and my brother and my cousin against the stranger. Okay. Uh, we can explain it from a human phenomena of jahiliya, of ignorance, without guided by revelation. Here's how humans act. Look in India, you have oppression against Mus uh, Muslims, even though they are of the same ethnicities mm. as those uh, and same language as those around them. But it's because um, now Hinduism is, is being created into a, na a national group. And they're going to be, there's discrimination, there's lack of job opportunities, there's violence, there's um, police brutality, all the same phenomenon that you see. And I'll end my point with this um, absurdity I noticed. Someone tried to apply critical race theory in, in modern day South Africa to explain the, the racism between uh, South, uh, South Africans and um, Mozambicans who, who came in as immigrants to South Africa. Mozambicans speak Portuguese. And South Africans, uh, they speak a variety of their own languages, but they also speak English as the official language. And so because they have these different language speakers, even though they're not from a they're not from a, a very distant part of the world from themselves and they're not white or, or there's no white, you know, but simply by the difference of that language, Portuguese and English, um, they view them as different. They view them as foreigners. They, uh, they there's uh, violence against uh, Mozambicans living in South Africa, discrimination, racism, and so on and so forth. And the, uh, there was a, I wrote a, I read a paper on this by a critical race theorist who tried to explain it as um, residual white supremacy that resides in the hearts of the previously subjugated people of the South the South African people. Oh my themselves. God! It's like no, I can think of a simpler explanation. Occam's razor. So anyway. Um, so, so critical race theory, um, I mean, I, I've written some articles about it um, on, on my blog, but uh, the, the, the founder... Well, I wanna, at this stage, I just want to just uh, yeah. put a link up here just to promote a course that you're doing with the Quran Institute. People, please go to the Quran.institute forward slash F-E-M-C-R-T. You can see the link here. Or if you're listening to this, then go to the Quran.institute forward slash F-E-M-C-R-T because uh, Ustad uh, Abdullah is going to be expanding on some of these very complicated topics and concepts that he's been introducing today. And, you know, the main point of this, one of the main points of this of, of these type of podcasts is for you to continue your intellectual journey so you could access the speakers, go on their websites, um, go on the, attend their courses in order for you to unpack and understand and internalize these ideas even further in order for you to be basically you know, share Islam, internalize Islam and defend Islam as well and help others to do so the same. So don't think this is like, you know, a two hour podcast that's going to give you everything on this topic because there's been a few names that even Abdullah has mentioned that I don't think I've ever heard of. So it's a lot of reading for me as well. But yeah, so please everyone go to the Quran.institute forward slash F-E-M-C-R-T and please, please just Google Abdullah Andalusi 
and look at his website. There's lots of articles there. In actual fact, I've benefited from his articles, specifically the one concerning hell, the problem of hell, uh, dealing with that issue, and, and others as well. And he is a reference, alhamdulillah. So please explore his work and please attend this course as well. I wanted to mention this uh, clearly. And I'm going to be putting this on the YouTube description below as well in order for you guys to be able to access it more easily. So CRT, see my problem with what you're saying so far, I agree with you by the way, is why, okay, maybe that's a big question, but why is it that activists, academics, Muslim thinkers, people who want to defend Islam, they they adopt worldviews that are seemingly alien to the tradition in order to solve problems that Muslims or even human beings are facing. Isn't the whole point of the Furqan, you mentioned the Furqan, the differentiator, which is the Qur'an, the whole point of divine guidance, the whole point of the, the, the prophetic sunnah, the prophetic way of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, isn't that the whole point? It wasn't that revealed to us in order, in order to guide our current affairs and individual affairs as well. Why is it this kind of almost constant pattern of some kind of ideological inferiority complex that we have to adopt things that are being used in academia as if the is as if the academy is this objective uh, source of reality which is not true at all there's so many epistemic biases metaphysical falsities permeating acad academy i know i'm a phd student and i was asked to do some review of some uh, orientalist articles and other articles and you could just see this filtered everywhere it's filtered uh, it's not filtered it's uh, it permeates uh, academic discourse, all of these false epistemic biases and metaphysical falsities, I like to call them. Why are we in this situation? Why can't we just go to the Quran and the prophetic teachings and the understanding of the scholars and use a robust methodology to derive answers in order to solve our current problems? Because you did it very simply. You just said it's asabiyah, it's it's uh, tribalism, it's kibr, it's ego. Who solves these problems? What solves these problems? It's Islam, it's tawheed. It's affirming the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's worshipping Allah. It's understanding who Allah is and who you are in relation to Allah. We've lost the, da the da'wah dynamic on this, on this issue. And we've almost secularized our da'wah discourse. Yeah, let's use CRT because it's achieving a goal that we like as well, even though it could be used against us in the future. Yeah, let's use postmodernism because it's removing the hierarchies that are oppressing the Muslims and Islam, right, and the Islamic community. Uh, and let, let us use it for now. But then they, they'll realize in the next 10, 15, 20 years, we're going to have a generation of Muslims that may not even be Muslim anymore just by virtue of what they believe and their worldview. This is so critical, bro. To the point is we need another couple of podcasts to unpack some of these issues because this was just like, I just felt it was like there's a lot, right? There's so much more to unpack and I'm definitely going to have you back. But the point here is, so... Yeah, address what I'm saying. Address my, <laughs> my passion here. <laughs> well, that's, that's because you're Greek, of course. That's where. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. We, 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 break, we break plates at weddings. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, so uh, let me break it down if, I'm, if, not, if not doing it with plates. Um, so, 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 basically, <laughs> what, I mean, what, what you say is, is, is true, and it's due to a lack of confidence in, um, in Islam, a lack of knowledge about the Islamic solution. Um, many Muslims think that you're, if you're in the West, 
uh, the West won't don't want to hear about Islam when, in dealing with these um, problems they have. So instead, you have to just use their own things. Uh, so, for example, if you want to argue that Muslims should have rights, then the, the left will say, um, then you need to join us and go on LGBTQ relationship promotion platforms that promote these relationships as equal to, to he, um, heteronormative um, relations, i.e., you know, the different sex marriage, you know, the same, same um, uh, the, the nuclear family, all this stuff. Uh, because if you want if you want Muslim rights to be uh, protected against conservatives and, and liberals who are enforcing X, Y, and Z against Muslims, uh, then you, you have to, it would be hypocritical if you didn't also want it for other people. And you, and it, almost these are, it's a false dichotomy, by the way, because what Muslims want is like, we don't want to be like shot and killed just for being Muslim. And no one's saying that if someone um, has, has, uh, has certain feelings for the same sex, would have you, that they should be shot and killed in the street. No one's saying that. So simply Muslims, we don't want to be arrested arbitrarily. We don't want to be interfered with in our um, in our religious life. And th that's it. It doesn't mean now that you now have to create a, a new subcategory of rights called transgender rights or um, LGBTQ rights. Mm. Um, we, we'll be happy with just simply saying, look, you have rights for all the, all the human citizens of the state uh, may be consistent with those rights with all human citizens they can't be arbitrarily arrested they can't be um, just killed or shot by law enforcement or by FBI coming to their house for a voluntary interview which happened once when Muslims were shot even though he, he accepted the FBI to come and speak to him voluntarily in his own house and he ended up being shot and the FBI said oh he, had, he was attacking me so we, we just want basic the basic rights offered to all citizens um, in in any of these these states, right? And that's that's it. We don't have to go out of, but we shouldn't be. We shouldn't have to go out of our way to advocate for specialist rights given to um, uh, whatever whatever um, subcategories are, are created uh, for us now to to be given basic human respect and rights, or at least consistent treatment. That's basically it. Anyway. Um, so many Muslims, they, they fall into that and they, they, they will go on, on all those platforms feeling obliged to do so. Many ISOCs or MSAs um, have, have uh, contacted me and said, look, but what do we do? We, we've, been, uh, we've been supported by this, this left-wing um, uh, movement or group or what have you, but now they're demanding that we have to go on, on a platform supporting something we don't actually agree with. Mm. Yeah? What about the abortion debate as well now? Um, many Muslim, uh, you know, many Muslim women I've seen in the United States of America um, are arguing that uh, that abortion should be legalized for cases which don't don't concern um, you know medical problems. So if the person's totally healthy and fine, and in cases not involving rape, but but at the discretion and desire of the of the woman, even up to the third trimester. What? Um, yes, even up to the third that's, trimester. Well, that's, that's 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 murder. But um, are they argue purely on the basis that of the individualistic idea of um, every person is the ultimate owner of their body, even though we didn't create ourselves. Well, the interesting right. thing is, well, one part of an, an aspect of the oneness of the divine is the oneness of his creative power, which is the fact that he owns everything. <laughs> you don't own yourself, right? Yeah. This is the problem with being, using a, a brother's terminology, ideologically infected. <laughs> this, is, this is an ideologically molested <laughs> uh, uh, human being, but it's true. Let's just be very honest because remember, everything links back, bro, to Allah, as you said, God centric, right? Who is Allah? Who are we in relation to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? How we must relate to Him? What does Allah tell us in the Quran and the Sunnah in order to, un uh, on how to understand ourselves in the world? 
that perspective of that whoever sister who said it's fine to do that based on an individualistic perspective of we think we have uh, full ownership of who of of ourselves this is someone who categorically does not understand some elements of the oneness of allah and who they are as a human being and 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 basic scriptural uh, divine guidance of how we should live our lives and how we should understand ourselves and so, this is why it's so important to keep on talking about these topics bro and, um, and as i said to, to kind of to answer that your, your the your question in, in perhaps in a, in a, in a with more brevity is um that muslims need to actually learn about how islam solves problems of mankind itself economic problems the de with a detailed solutions not just with no riba no no interest but it's actually it's a bit more than that it's more elaborate elaborate than that i, I did i did lectures on uh, i think you can see them online about economic system uh, how islam solves the, the problems uh, you've done lectures on uh, how islam solves social problems uh, uh, issues in the family or how it organizes it, and, and many more besides that as well and, and many duat have, have done so uh, and we need we, we need to obviously redouble our efforts to, to get it out there but basically because muslims lack that knowledge um, they're not confident about articulating islam we're meant to be uh, witnesses to mankind you know al-nas right to all mankind mm. uh, for the dean of Islam for the for the truth in the West when they have a problem when they have a problem of racism for example, uh, we should instead of be, be going to CRT or going to or some Muslims are even are actually even follow liberalism and 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 deny racism. So oh, liberalism is a perfect system. There's no there's conservative Muslims in the, in the Republican Party, which is ridiculous. Um, so instead of all that, we say look, the pro you will never get rid of racism as long as you have the idea of a nation state, a state that represents a particular nation. Because that nation will always nation meaning ethnic or linguistic group, because that nation will always be given privilege. And if, if you have more immigration, there'll always be that the majority group of the group that the nation represents their interests, because the, the, the state is meant to represent the interests of, of the group of the in the democracy, the majority. They will always be they will always hate immigration, they'll always be worried about um, minorities. They'll say these these will change our culture. Uh, as if every individual born in, in the majority group has some kind of birthright to determine the culture of the society more than anybody else does. Uh, whereas in Islam, we say, you know what? We solve it. We don't make it about humans. We make it about Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. It becomes completely irrelevant who the majority, who the majority of the minority is, because the creator of of the tribe of Adam alayhi salam, which is our mm -hmm. group, and the Ummah, um, we're all the same in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, except those who are pious and have yes, taqwa righteous. And, and those who um, are, are sinners and transgressors. You can choose your social status, so to speak, in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can choose your status <laughs> to your um, uh, without needing wealth, without needing things given to you. Um, you can choose it. Everyone can choose it. It's you're truly free to be uh, the, the worshipper you want to be. Right, yes. the one who the one who acknowledges the truth of reality. You can be, you can do, you can do your extra sunnah. You can do yes. extra charity. You can help your neighbor more than you have to if you want. You or or, or just do the minimum. You can. You uh, yeah, can I think they would argue here though that you have to therefore adopt a particular philosophical worldview in order for that even to make sense. But I think I could just preempt your answer is well, you have to adopt the secular worldview in order for that to work as well at the same time. So you have to adopt ideas, you have to adopt a worldview, and that's why ideas are so significant, and that's why it's extremely important to continue unpacking things like neo-Marxism, postmodernism, CRT, 
and to get Muslims to realize that ideas are so significant, not only from a perspective of solution, but a perspective of your whole life and also the perspective of our discussion today. Because if people start adopting uh, neo-Marxism and postmodernism in the way that you've described it, and this and 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 to do it and to adopt it in an instrumental way because they believe it might be a kind of means to a particular ends that we as minorities become a little bit more emancipated. It's very shallow thinking because all the hierarchy is going to be destroyed, including Islam, the Islamic yeah, hierarchy. The social just turn it, they really have. I've really encountered Muslims who turn up against Islam and say uh, Islam is colonial because look how the the, the caliphate under Abu Bakr and Umar spread, or how even the Prophet Muhammad uh, spread the authority of Medina uh, to the Arabian Peninsula to other tribes. Uh, so this is, is this not colonialism? Is this does this mean that um, if you're going to condemn colonialism as simply um, a political expansion, and that's wrong because uh, one people can't uh, um, can't be enforced on other peoples, quote unquote. Um, then Islam would be wrong, even though technically that's not what Islam did anyway. Islam never forced people to change their political system or how they, sure. uh, so how uh, how each community lived its laws and so yes. on and so forth, which liberalism did do. But we there was political expansion. Um, or they'll say, what about um, Islamic uh, slavery? Quote unquote. If you're going to condemn mm -hmm. Western slavery, they'll say, then uh, why did the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi didn't abolish it himself? I say, well, actually, you know what? Um, Islam, you know, limited slavery to certain aspects, uh, you know, prisons of war and so on and so, on and so forth. But it, the treatment of slaves or servants uh, is vastly different, uh, such that it's not um, the very concept of um, of of, uh, of having of servitude of peoples who are prisons of war, because the Geneva Convention allows you to make um, prison of war do work. By the way, everyone forgets that the third Geneva Convention. Um, so it's not that, it's that the Western idea of slavery, how it was practiced, that was bad. That's what we condemn, what they did, how they did it, the the, the lack of rights of the slave and how they even got them in the first place. That was what... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't even use the word slavery anyway because it has the wrong kind of connotations. Yeah, of course. It's, it's a different, yeah. yeah, it's a different paradigm. It's a different paradigm that needs to be unpacked maybe for another podcast. But so, yeah, so... That the, the course, um, uh, the course called the, the Race and Gender Course uh, and other left-wing ideologies... Um, and it, it's, it's going to be a much more detailed unpacking of all these things. There's so much more I, I could have said, and, and I'm, I'm just, I glossed over so much. Uh, I didn't talk about structuralism and post-structuralism um, as much, even though that's actually very important to what, what made neo-Marxists become post-Marxist. But there's mm. a, we, we can discuss it in another podcast, of course. I'm more happy absolutely, to absolutely. But that's what the course is designed for, is to equip all dual art uh, and anyone, even just Muslims who are interested, or those who are scholars or, or, or those who are imams, to understand what what the West, its history, its intellectual history of this, its, its, its history of how it deals with deal, dealt with race, its, the racism of its past, um, the emergence of fascism and nationalism, and all these into, all these, how these facts interplay, as well as critical race theory, critical gender studies, um, the various waves of feminism, all this is is going is unpacked into great detail, and the Islamic perspective is mm. is supplied in in much more detail. Um, so that's yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, yeah, the the role of these podcasts is just to give platform to these ideas, so people could continue. If anything, if they've got anything from this podcast, is that they should understand that there is something problematic uh, from a conceptual and philosophical point of view concerning postmodernism and neo Marxism. And that if you follow the kind of logical implication of adopting the destruction of cultural hegemony and hierarchy, then that's going to end up destroying Islam. 
so you shouldn't use it just as an instrument to a particular short-term goal you need to look a bit a little bit further and you also need to understand that you shouldn't fall uh, for the false epistemic biases and metaphysical falsities of other philosophies approaches or worldviews and you should come to the islamic tradition and you know seek scholarly guidance to apply it in our contemporary times in a way that could provide solutions from the islamic basis because number one it would be consistent number two it will be only khair, only goodness for you as an individual, for the Muslim community, and for humanity itself. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent this Qur'an to take us out of the darkness, yes, into the, into the light, into the light of Allah's guidance. So it's very important, brothers and sisters, that you know we take some of these ideas, you attend um, Ustad Abdullah's course, the Qur'an.institute forward slash fem. CRT, go to his website, go to his other courses and start developing the kind of Islamic worldview because Islam is not a religion from a kind of secular perspective, it's a worldview. It's based on the truth and from this truth emanates laws, values, morals, ethics that are only going to be the best thing for not only us individually but for the whole of humanity. So it's very important to... And just lastly, and just lastly yeah. um, in case people say Okay, we should be witnesses to mankind, but what about um, you know day-to-day -day issues where Muslims mistreated by the police or what have you? Um, again, the principles of justice that Muslims uh, believe in um, when dealing with non-Muslims, because the Quran says, "Do not dispute the people of the book unless you witness them committing injustice." We don't mean by that in that verse that they're not following the Quran, because we, obviously they're not going to follow the Quran. They're people of the book, um, the Christians and Jews. Yes. In this case, it means that when they're being inconsistent with their own principles. So in the West, mm. if, if everyone is meant to be, let's say, um, if everyone has the right to an attorney, if everyone has a right to a court, to, to be brought in the court and to face their charges, and if one Western country starts West, uh, arresting Muslims and not giving them a court uh, case, we can say, we can't say, look, in the name of liberalism, give us our rights. No, we simply say, you believe in these principles. Why aren't you consistent with the principles that you hold to? So that's also a way we can, we can argue um, but at the same time, we should also say that you will ultimately never solve the problems in your society effectively because you lack the adherence to the revelation. The only way to solve it is by fulfilling the, the purpose of all human beings as prescribed by the creator who gives us the only guidance to solve human nature, nature that we do have, by the way, for those existentialists. <laughs> so yeah. that's it. Good. Jazakallah here, bro. May Allah bless you. This Jazakallah for spending nearly over well nearly two and a half hours with me it's been a huge pleasure and an honor for you to be here and you have so much to offer the community and we're always supportive supportive of your work and we share your stuff alhamdulillah and we've mentioned you many times on our lives as well i believe so keep on doing the great work anything that we can as a collective as sapiens can support you let me know anything that i can do individually to support you let me know um inshallah, inshallah. I'm, yeah inshallah, inshallah. I'm, I'm, I'm i'm hopefully trying to self-define myself as the person that if you do reach out and you need anything i'll be at your service let's let me let's hope that we can continue that and that's a leadership style that we need in the dawah community now if the du'at and organizations come to each other and they're like-minded that they need help we should not even think twice and be at their service um so yeah bro i'm at your but service anything you need let me know and come at 2am to your house to ask for a cup of sugar 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the other thing is, bro, um, <laughs> we definitely, we definitely need you back. We definitely need you back because there's so much more to unpack. Maybe just take one idea and unpack the whole thing. But I think this was a good introduction. It's gonna get people thinking, which is which is needed. And you may get some positive comments on your Twitter, and you may get some uh, pro CRT. Pro Marxist post post a lot, a lot of comments from those, yeah. <laughs> but I know you deal with them really well, and it's and it's uh, sometimes it's, it's it's a joy just watching it. But let, yes, but I leave you with the last word. Give the audience the last few sentences, uh, and then we'll close, inshallah. Well, I simply say, like Fik and brother, for inviting me and uh, for your patience, uh, your your Greek stoic uh, patience, and uh, uh, hearing me go on and on about a very a very big subject. But um, I just like to say that, as I said. The offers also reciprocated uh, for you. Any other brothers at Sapiens Institute and and and, and beyond? Um, we, we as Muslims, we're here for each other. We're one ummah. Uh, we're like you know uh, teeth in a comb. Uh, we we support each other. We're like bricks that's uh, you know linked together, supporting up the roof. And as I said, um, you know we're, it's a learning experience. From you know we're always learning new things, and I'm still learning new things. And um, you know, any of the, the anything which I've said has been true and accurate has been from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and the, the mistakes have been completely uh, mine uh, and abundantly mine. So, barakallah fikum, brother, once again, and inshallah, I look forward to uh, doing this again on you know, a different topic. Inshallah. Salaamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh.